In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God. Glory to thee. Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, O treasure of every good and bestower of life. Come and dwell in us, and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, a good one. In giving birth, thou didst preserve thy virginity. In thy donation, thou didst not forsake the world of Theodorus. Thou wast translated unto life, since thou art the mother of life. And by thine intercession, dost thou redeem our souls from death. Sit down. In the last talk, which was named Examining the Pharisee Within Us, which was talk 43, we looked at prayer, which involves prostrations and bows as well, fasting and almsgiving. And we looked at these because a lot of Orthodox Christians think that that's basically what orthodoxy is. When you ask someone who doesn't know much or... Unfortunately, even those going to church for many years, they say, yes, orthodoxy is, you know, icons, makes it a bit different to other religions. We do a lot of bows and prostrations, prayers and fasting and some almsgiving, give a bit to the Red Cross, give a bit to the church, 20 cents. And that's basically um, it. Of course, other people have different views, which we'll come to later on. And that's true that from the lives of saints, we read that the Holy Fathers, the saints, wrote a lot about prayer, fasting and almsgiving as being very, very important. So that's true. And as I said, a lot of Orthodox Christians do do that, those um, practices. So one would say, as I said in the last talk towards the end, that if the Holy Fathers and the saints did those things and they became holy then people then should be spiritually progressing today. But what do we see today? Oh, as time goes on from even centuries before and as, as, as we go on today, and we see that spirituality in the church is steadily decreasing. And why do I say that? Because there's a lack of faith. That's why people run to magicians and run to mediums and 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 run to and do yoga and do other things which is um, you know lack of faith spiritual darkness spiritual ignorance and basically deception and i've devoted quite a lot of talks on spiritual deception um, and especially talks 41 and 42 which i did a few months ago were very important for the spiritual life but i also did some in the 30s 35 36 i can't remember now so without a doubt, if you read a lot of the present-day elders and the ones that just passed away a few decades ago, or right through the last century, and even those that still exist, they all agree that we are living in times of slackness. Spirituality is at a very low point. So I ended with the last talk by posing the question, if you remember... What is the reason for this? If people are praying and if people are fasting and if people do give their 20 cents to the Red Cross, etc., why then are people not progressing? Some people answered that humility is missing. If you remember, some people around here said humility. 
And this talk, when it was sent overseas, one woman posed the question to her church group over there, and they were answering. Some said because of confession, people don't go to confession, but that's not true because a lot of people who go to confession are quite spiritually darkened. So there's a problem there. I think to see whether humility is the answer or whether there's anything else, I want to recap just a little bit on what we said last month. I read to you three parts from the Bible that Christ instructs on prayer, on fasting and on almsgiving. And we said where Christ's own words are, when you pray you shall not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray stand in the synagogue and on the corners of the streets that there may be seen by men. Assuredly I say to you they have their reward. So Christ uses a very, very strong word, hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. Then we go to the second instruction on fasting. When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad face, countenance looking, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So he uses the word hypocrites again. Now we go to his advice. Remember, that's not Christ as man, Christ as God and man. So when we hear, when we read the Bible when we, and we are reading Christ's words, they are God's words. Almsgiving, well, the whole Bible obviously is God's words, but we're saying specifically here in the incarnate God. Almsgiving, take heed, in other words, be careful, that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, like what we say, almsgiving, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory for men. I surely I say to you, they have received their reward. Again, the word hypocrites. So he uses hypocrites for prayer, hypocrites for fasting, hypocrites for almsgiving. And yet... People, only a few read the Bible, unfortunately, but we'll come to that soon. But uh, one would have to question and say, why is that word constantly being used? Why is that his first advice? Why does Christ advise that firstly? Don't be like the hypocrites for prayer. Don't be like the hypocrites for fasting. Don't be like the hypocrites for almsgiving. Obviously, because that is the cancer. That is the worst disease. Because when Christ came to earth... When he uh, was incarnate, when he began his teaching, the biggest disease that existed in the Jewish religion, which was the true religion at the time, they worshipped the true God, was hypocrisy. That was the main disease. Therefore, how can he, like many priests today who say, we don't speak about those things, we should speak about other things, just tell people to love God and to pray. We don't mention hypocrisy because today in this politically correct world that we live in, we should never offend people. So these people, what they're doing is they're distorting the gospel because the gospel says clearly that Christ warns against hypocrisy three times there. And of course, we hear, we, there's other parts too, which we're going to see soon. He warns because it is the worst 
Nothing is worse than a religious person who's a hypocrite. Some people say to me, oh, the Catholics or the Jews or the Muslims, those people don't interest me in the sense of not that we don't have love for them and wish them the best. What I mean is they don't involve me because the worst per if, if you read the Gospels, you'll see that Christ rarely referred to the pagans. If you read the epistles of saints Peter and Paul, etc., they hardly refer to the pagans of their times. They don't refer. They're referring to those who are supposedly the religious, the ones who believe in God, and are hypocrites. They're the worst. Some people say, but how about the gays? Or how about the abortionists? Or how about the magicians, those who don't know, etc.? The fathers of the church say that God will punish more severely those who are hypocrites in their religious life. And that's why he warns hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites three times. So the answer to the question is hypocrisy is one of the reasons why people do not spiritually progress. And if you um, examine the title of last talk, Examining the Pharisee Within Us. Saint Nikolai, the Serbian saint, says that there's Phariseeism in all of us. The saints had to deal with Phariseeism, with hypocrisy, with vainglory. But deal with it means to look at yourself, examine it, and then try to rid yourself, free yourself from this. When a person is not even aware of it, like the Pharisees of old, and we know what happened to them, that they had God in front of them and they crucified him. Then Christ gives a parable of the publican and the Pharisee, which I didn't have time to read the actual part from the Bible, but I read commentaries. But I want to read that part of the Bible because that parable actually refers to prayer, fasting and almsgiving. So, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. A hypocrite, a spiritual hypocrite, will always think that they are good. When, when that spirit comes on us, and it comes on, on all of us, we believe that we're good, that we're holy, that we're better than others, and we look down, despise others. That's the symptom. So when you see yourself in church standing and you begin to look at others and say, oh, look what he's doing, look what she's doing, look what the priest is doing, look at this, look at that, and then you kind of feel within your heart that you are better, that means that at that time you are suffering from hypocrisy, all of us. So two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Now, the Pharisees were a sect, were a group, who followed the rules to the letter. They were the, the holies of the time. They were, they were um, one could say, like, I don't know, maybe Orthodox Jews of today. I think they are, I'm not saying that they're Pharisees, um, that's between them and God. I'm just saying that they follow the rules. And the tax collectors were considered as the worst in that society because they would steal money from the people. 
But in reality, the worst is the Pharisee. But anyway, just like today, people say, oh, the prostitutes are the worst or this or that. But really, the worst are the Pharisees within the church. The Pharisees, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as his tax collector, I fast, here we go, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Tithes, some Protestants still do that. Tithing is when you promise to the church 10% of your earnings. In those days, there was Moses' law that they give 10% of all their earnings to the temple and for the upkeep of the clergy. So 10%. And um, the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner, which is the Jesus prayer, as we can, well, obviously that, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, this man, meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified. He returned home justified, and justified means forgiven. He was reconciled with God. Because when we sin, we cut, we lose communion with God. When we repent, then we reunite with God. We, we enter into communion again. Rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee, how can grace dwell in a person who loves themselves, who thinks that they're good and puts down everyone else? For, Christ says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humbled doesn't mean in the good sense. He who puts himself up, will be smashed to the ground, will lose everything. But he who humbles himself of his own will, using his own will, he says, God, forgive me, that person will be exalted, means that God will give him his grace and save him. Blessed Theophilact writes, the Lord unceasingly, I said this last time, the Lord unceasingly expels the passion of pride in many ways, continually. If you read the Gospels, you will notice that Christ refers to that passion a lot. This passion, more than any other, disturbs our thoughts, and for this reason the Lord always and everywhere teaches on this subject. For example, now I'm, this is what I'm saying. For example, what did the devil fall and his, and his um, angels from pride? So the devil, Satan, and all his, those who followed him fell from heaven, lost their communion with God, out of pride, because they wanted to be above God. Adam and Eve, why did they lose paradise? Because of pride. The heretics, those who, who distort the truth of the church and then later on cut off from the church, what is their main core? What's their reason? Pride. Like Arius, which is the, one of the worst heretics in the Orthodox Church, who denied that Christ is God, when his mother asked him, because he was having this, there was a whole, the, the whole Orthodox world was upside down, because of his teaching, he had spread it everywhere. And he was having, um, his combat was with Athanasius the Great. Athanasius was saying that Christ is God and man, and he was saying that Christ is just man. And Arius's mother asked him, My son, who is correct, Athanasius or you? And, and, and Arius answered, he's correct, but I can't back down now. I can't admit that I'm wrong. Now, you might say, oh, that's just... But that's what happens to a lot of people today. When a couple has a fight, 
usually one of them knows who's at fault at the time, but then that pride comes and say, I'm not going to ask forgiveness. Or when we have an argument with someone, we have that stubbornness and say, I'm not going to ask forgiveness. Let's let it pass. Or I don't want to talk to that person anymore. So don't think that that's not... Pride is, you know, uh, is very strong in us. It's like when, when that happens to us, we should look at ourselves as devils. Like the devil refuses to repent, to say sorry to God. All he has to do is say sorry and he'll be saved, even now, even after all that he's done. But he himself will not say it. Not that God does not want him. Sometimes when the saints who are so engulfed, one can say they were full of the Holy Spirit, they would be praying for the world, at times their love would be so great that they'll even begin to pray for the devil. And, of course, we don't do that because our love, we don't even love those around us, so don't try and go home and pray for the devil. And... Um, so these saints would praying for the, these saints would be praying for the devil, and the devil would appear and say, "Don't pray for me. Don't don't say for me to to have mercy." That he hates the word "have mercy." He won't say it. He refers to God as Lord. If you read the um, Job, the book of Job, there where he's the dialogue between the devil and God about Job in the Old Testament. And he says, Lord, so he refers. That's why St. James says, do you believe? He says to the people, you believe in God. That's, that's really not enough because even the devil believes and trembles. The devil is scared of God. The devil shows respect to God. He is in awe of God, but he won't, Ask for mercy. And that's what St. James says. It's not enough to believe. Which is why the Protestants don't like the epistle of St. James. Because St. James says that faith without works is dead. And they say, no, as long as you believe in Jesus, you're saved. And that's not correct. Because the devil believes that Christ is God incarnate. The devil believes and confesses. That's why when you read the the New Testament, you see that the demons themselves would confess and say, you are the son of God. They would confess. So they knew. So a lot of married couples divorce because of stubborn pride. It is true that from all the above we can see a common theme, that is vainglory, pride, hypocrisy. So the answer to the question, one of the answers is, yes, that's true. That vainglory, pride, hypocrisy, in other words, a lack of humility is one of the answers for why people do not progress today. But there is another, but is there anything else which can answer the question? So the, the, the question, I'll say it again, why is spirituality in the church steadily decreasing even though people fast, pray and give alms? And to answer the question, we're going to study more on the Holy Fathers and on the Gospels and the interpretations of the Gospels, because we don't just interpret Gospels on our own, unless you're Protestant, then you can interpret all day and all night. The teachings of the Holy Fathers and the Saints. So, number one, Saint Isaiah the Recluse. He lived in, the, in Egypt during the 5th and 6th centuries. He said, prayer and asceticism 
are useless to a man who hides within himself malice towards his neighbour and the desire for revenge. In other words, he says you do not get any benefit if you pray, if you live an ascetical life, if you fast, etc., and struggle and do prostrations, if at the same time you have in your heart malice, hate towards your neighbour and inside you have a desire for revenge, we may not um, execute that revenge. We might not do it because most people are uh, don't have the guts, one can say, if you can use that word. Uh, most people just sit and wait. They wait and wait for something to happen, for one of their children to overdose or for them to lose their business or for them to lose their job or whatever. They just wait and when that happens... And then there's pleasure. So we have to examine ourselves, all of us, whether priest or monk or nun or bishop or layperson or chanter or whatever, have to examine how much do we have in our hearts hidden hate and a desire for revenge towards those who have maybe, you know, offended us, didn't acknowledge us, made fun of us, ignored us, etc., so that is uh, an important thing. That's what Saint Isaiah says. So what's the point in doing all those things if you've got that? Saint John Chrysostom, I read this last time. What good is it if we abstain from eating poultry, meat, etc., fish, but bite and devour our brothers? It's similar to the first one. If we slander, if we don't have love for our brother, if we don't pray for them, if we don't have mercy, if we don't forgive if we don't ask forgiveness or we don't forgive those around us, then what's the point in fasting? St John Christum says, what good is it? That's why I tell people, is there any point in fasting if you're going to hold that, that desire in your heart? Like someone yesterday telephoned and continually something to do with, you know, with relatives and and properties and costs and not costs are courts and I said to the person just give in just let it go the more you just just don't worry about it it's not even worth it was it how much is it a, a few thousand dollars whatever I said but I think what you want is you want revenge you don't want to give in because you want to get back at them they say no 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 that's not true etc and I said give it back just just forget about it if you want peace And I close the phone. Because sometimes it's a bit too burdensome, you know, and you might say, oh, that's really rude for a priest to close the phone. Uh, you know, it's not rude when we do it. It's not rude when we ignore someone because they, they um, say something to us that's um, offensive personally to us. But if something's against the church or against God... We don't seem to worry about that. And when a priest speaks up and there's all of a sudden it's, um, oh, he's a bad person. St. Macarius of Optinus says, avoid making idols either of things or of practices. He was warned in, the, in this particular one, if you remember the epistle, that's when someone had stopped eating meat on Monday and he became obsessed with it. And St. Macarius of Optinus said, look, you're getting proud you're making an idol. Like it's like you're worshipping this practice, like the Pharisees worshipped the, the keeping of the Sabbath or some other practice that they had, which we're going to read in a minute. In, and some people in the Orthodox Church, that's what they do. They, they worship certain practices. 
One of them is the fasting, no oils, etc., and becomes a worship. And St. Macarius says that's no good to worship practices. Number four, Elder Paisios of Manathos. Those who try fasting, vigils, vigils is when you stay up, well, for example, in Manathos, a monk might do a vigil in his own cell privately. He might stay up all night for five hours and pray. That's called vigils, keeping up, keeping alert and, and, and praying. Or they have vigil services where the service, the church service, could take seven hours, eight hours, and when it's a really good big feast day, they could even go for 12 hours or more. I can't remember now. That's called vigil. And he said that those who try fasting, vigils and, and so on, like I add their prostrations or whatever, but do so without getting rid of their egoism, end up making all this effort without spiritual benefit because they are punching the air rather than the demons. Because we know that fasting, prayer, etc. is a weapon against the devil. I read that last month. A lot of saints that say that. So where fasting or we're praying, supposedly we're doing that as a weapon against the demons, but yet here he says, it's for nothing. It's like you're punching the air. You're not punching them. You're not getting rid of them. What happens? Because they are punching the air rather than the demons. In other words, no effect. Instead, this is the most horrible thing, instead of chasing away temptation, Elder Paisio says, temptation meaning a number of things, but let's say in this case the demons, instead of chasing away temptation, they end up becoming receptive to the demons. What does that mean? The people who are praying, the people who are fasting, the people who are spiritually struggling, but do not work on their ego, but let their ego just run full speed ahead with no restraints, no struggle, no repentance. He said that those be people who are fasting at the same time and praying enter into communion with the demons. Now that's fearful. And that's why, for me personally, when I meet someone who is praying and fasting, goes to church, etc., but they're not working on their pride, on their ego, I'm scared of those people because those people have demonic energy on them. They're very intense, very stubborn, and they can attack if you try to expose their deception. That's why a lot of the saints don't say anything but rather pray for them because they can become worse. Instead of, ch even Christ himself never exposed hardly the Pharisees. That's why he used to go out into the desert to preach. He avoided them because he didn't want to make them worse. And when he did give his teaching, his pure teaching, he wouldn't do it, as he would, he would avoid as much as possible to do it with them there. And when they were there, if he did say something, he would try to censure them, not directly, but indirectly, because when you say to someone something directly, they become more offended. Elder Porfirio says, never say to someone directly their fault, 
but try and say it indirectly or just pray for them. St John of Cronson says that too, because of the fact that they become they can become worse. Or look at our own selves. Sometimes when people say our faults, how we um, react. But he says they become receptive to the demons, and naturally these people encounter a lot of difficulty in their struggle, and feel oppressed by oppressed by anxiety. So they're not really going well in their struggle, but they're finding difficulty because instead of, as I said, the demons staying away or the passions calming down to some degree, it becomes all worse. And, but those who strive greatly with humility and great trust in God rejoice in their heart and their souls soar. means their souls fly. So what do we find here? So, so far we have humility has been important, you can't have hate when you're doing an ascetical life. You can't make an idol out of practices. And was the other thing that we had here? Egoism. We have to work on our egoism, which is really a form of pride. So that's number four. Number five, St Simeon, the new theologian. This was meant to be read last time, but actually I forgot it on the table. But I saw it when I, later on when I went back, and I said I'm going to add it to this talk. St Simeon, the new theologian. Only three saints are called theologian. St. John the Theologian, one of the twelve, and the most beloved of Christ. St. Gregory the Theologian, one of the three hierarchs. St. John Chrysostom, Basil the Great, and Gregory the Theologian, because of his theology. And the other one is St. Simeon the New Theologian. Only three are referred to as theologians. Now, why, etc., I don't really... I haven't read and studied that, but I'm just telling you that to be called theologian, only three to be called, that means he's a great saint. Now, what, let's see what this great saint says. And to become a great saint, obviously he was an ascetic. I, I know a man who did not keep long, strict fasts. He did not keep vigils, or actually he didn't keep vigils at all, he said. He did not sleep on the bare earth, as a lot of the ascetics did did not impose on himself any other especially difficult task. In other words, he didn't impose on himself podvigs, ascetical feats. Like a lot of the saints might say, I'm going to, you know, Saint Xenia said, I'm going to be a fool for Christ. Well, she was called to do that. So she would live in the streets and people would have spit on her and abuse her and hit her and kids would mock her. That's an ascetical feat. So it's a fool for Christ. Some would live in a cave on their own. Some might take an ascetical feat to take care of the lepers, those diseased with the chance that they could, be, they could contract the disease and die. So there's all different ways with what are called podvigs. But remembering his sins, so he didn't do any of those things, but remembering his sins, he understood his worthlessness and having judged himself, in other words, he condemned himself, he became humble. And for this alone, the most compassionate Lord saved him. As the prophet David says, quote, the Lord is near those who are of contrite heart and he will save the humble in spirit. Now these, of course, are words which we need to read because the demons love to inspire us or we inspire ourselves, either they do it or we, or we do it ourselves or, we, or together. Most people work together. Where the demons say fast, pray, that's good, yes, do that. And then they congratulate us, or we congratulate ourselves. And they don't mind that. They like that. 
But here, uh, we're, we're seeing this example so that people don't put all their trust in their ascetical feats. That's why. Not that we don't pray, not that we don't fast, but that we don't put our trust in our own ascetical practices. And he says here that Saint David, Prophet David says, and this is a beautiful from the Psalms, I think, I don't know which one, the Lord is near those, God comes near those who are of contrite heart. Contrite means of a repentant heart, someone who sees their sins and repents. And he will save the humble in spirit, meaning he will save those who have repentance and humility, even if they don't have the rest for whatever reason. In short, he trusted, uh, so we say here, in short, sorry, this is Saint Simeon continues, in short, he trusted the words of the Lord and for his faith the Lord received him. Which, were, which words is he saying? That God is near those who have a repentant heart and a humble spirit. They, if you're doing the rest and you haven't got that, then it's demonic. If you do the others, then they will help you to get the correct spirit. But there are people who've been saved that didn't have that at all, didn't have anything, fasting and none of the other things for whatever reason. The tax collector, in the parable that we just read, condemned himself and asked for God's mercy. That's all he did. That is, he humbled himself, he hid his chest and he says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He repented and it says that he was justified just on that. But the other person, the, uh, the Pharisee, he had, because he boasted, I fast twice a week, I give my 10% tithes and I give alms. But it said he wasn't, he wasn't justified. God rejected him. Number six. So some of you might say, does that mean you're telling us that we don't have to pray and not to fast? No, we still make our attempts. I'm saying that if you just do that and think you're going to be saved on the practice itself, no, there's no salvation without humility and repentance. So that's another thing we can add to our list, repentance. Number six, St. Ignatius of writes, one should not give value to the labour itself. This means that one should not be self-satisfied and excited by the quantity of prayers and prostrations. In other, otherwise, this would lead to Phariseeism, the hardening of the heart and deadness of the soul. So when we are satisfied and go, oh, look how many prostrations I've done, look how many prayers I did tonight, look how many prayer ropes I did, look how much fasting I did, etc., etc., St. Ignatius is saying that when a person... Um, puts value to that as being everything, then the person will become a Pharisee, their, their heart will be hardened and their soul dead. So we have another one here which is self-satisfaction, etc. Such, and I love this last, last line, this last sentence, such is the fruit of all bodily labour, like bodily labour means 
fasting and, pr and prostrations there. Such is the fruit of all bodily labour that is not motivated, in other words, that is not based on the intention to repent and does not have repentance as its sole aim. So it seems like the, we're getting more answers to the question of why spirituality is so low, even though people fast, pray and give alms. And now we've got another one. If the person, or I think it was from before, if the person does not have as an aim in their spiritual life repentance. Saint Cosmas, the apostle of the poor, a Greek saint, which the bishop who tonsured me gave me his name, basically is one of the greatest saints of the Greek Orthodox Church during the time of the when the um, Turks had occupied Greece for 400 years, he went around and preached and told them to come back to Orthodoxy. Some were, some were leaving the Orthodox Church because they were for some benefits that the Muslims would offer them if they became Muslim. They were ignorant. They didn't know about Orthodoxy. So he's a great... And he, he one thing with him is that he preached in a very simple way. And he says this this which is even more powerful than a lot of what was already said. Even if we perform thousands upon thousands of good works, my brethren, like fasts, prayers, almsgiving, even if we should shed our blood for our Christ and we don't have these two loves, that is love of God and love for our brethren, but on the contrary have hatred and malice towards our brethren, all the good we have done is of the devil and we go to hell and this is why because it says even if you do thousands and thousands of good works and even if you fast and pray and give alms I notice that he says those three things which is as I said before and even if we give our blood even if we die for Christ as a martyr but we don't have love of God and love for our brother then he says we go to hell but you say we go to hell the people answer him. But you say we go to hell despite all the good we do because of this little hatred. Yes, my brethren, answers the saint, because that hatred is the devil's poison. And just as when we put a little yeast in a hundred pounds of flour, it has such power that it causes all the dough to rise, so it is with hatred. It transforms all the good we have done into the devil's poison. So just one little bit of hate, he says makes everything we do worthless and we lose our souls. Now, some of you might say there, that sounds very harsh because who hasn't got hate? And yes, I think we all suffer from that passion, but the point here is we have to be aware of it and ask God to take it away from us, ask God to have mercy on us for the sin rather than just leaving it there to become, as he says, to grow like yeast and spoil everything and put us into hell. Number eight, St. Cosmas again. There was a man named Saprikios who always fasted, prayed and provided money for the poor. Again, there's those, there's those three. Built churches. He never did a harmful thing but loved justice. And justice, the Holy Fathers say, means that he did good to those around him. He had, he had love for his neighbour, but only one problem. 
he hated his brother Nikiforos. Nikiforos, on the other hand, he never did anything good. In fact, he stole, he cheated people, he fornicated, he did everything that was bad. He also wanted to murder his brother Saprikios. In other words, the two brothers hated each other. One day, you might say, why is the saint bringing this up? Because this hate is in all families, especially between brothers and sisters and brothers and brothers, etc. There's jealousy. I think a lot of it comes from the way the children were brought up. When parents give more attention without realising it, when a new baby comes and then ignores the other ones, that's no good. I always instruct people when help people when you have the new baby, even if you if you have to take it into the take the child into the room, maybe show more affection away from the others, but balance a bit, but don't have the full focus on the new child and then leave the other ones, especially when they're you know, three and four and five, they, they register, they begin to feel. Some mothers, they're very focused with the new child and they don't think about the other one or other two or whatever. And then this develops this jealousy. And all these, this whole becomes a mess. And plus, love of, of brother and sister is not cultivated in families where the parents say, you have to love your brother, you have to love your sister. And to examine, to see if they've got, I've seen... I remember once a person who, they had a child and then a few years later they had another one and the child was only around uh, two, year, two and a half years old. Two and a half years old and it was able to say to the mother, give the baby to dad and you take care of me. So the child was jealous and if we, and I said, when they told me that, and I, and I, of course, straight away, my ears stick up because I actually can see that that can grow into a disease and that child can then grow up and hate his brother or sister, whatever it was in the, in, in the case. So in the villages, there's a lot of hate uh, between brother and sister. In Serbia happens, Russia happens, Greece it happens, everywhere happens, and here as well. Continually, I'm dealing with people who have this uh, thing, you know, like that woman, for example, that I was saying, you know, she, um, uh, it was all to do again, brother, sister, jealousy, oh, sister, it's just too much. So that's why this was, um, this is a main passion. And that's why Saint Cosmas is speaking about it here. One day, the king sent for Saprikios, that's the religious brother, we'll just call him the religious brother, even though he hates his brother, but we'll just call him the religious brother, and asked him to deny Christ and to worship the idols. Saprikios said, I will never deny my Christ. Remember, this is the brother that fasted and gave alms, but he hated his brother. The king tortured him a great deal, and when he saw that there was no way to defeat him, the king decided to put Saprikios to death. He was handed over to the executioner who took him to the place of execution. Nikiforos, we'll call him the irreligious brother, learned of this and followed his brother Saprikius and said to him, so he, they both hated each other, but suddenly when the, the brother that wasn't religious saw his brother going to be executed, he, decided, he felt that he wanted to ask forgiveness. So he ran to his brother and said, Brother, I've done you wrong. And I've learned that they're putting you to death. So I beg you, brother, forgive me, for I have wronged you. 
Nikiforos, the, the, again, the irreligious brother, bent low and begged him again and kissed his feet and said, Brother, forgive me for God's sake. But his brother wouldn't forgive him. They reached the place of execution where Nikiforos, the irreligious brother, begged Saprikios, the religious brother, again with tears in his, in his eyes, but he wouldn't forgive him. Once more, Nikiforos said to him, Behold, brother, they're about to kill you. Why don't you forgive me? You'll be damned. In other words, you'll go to hell. So they knew, he knew that. I forgive you with all my heart. The devil knows they're going to go to hell too, but he won't repent. So we become similar to demons when we know that we have to ask forgiveness and we don't, then we become equal to them. And we've all experienced it. So that's where we have to ask God, please help me soften my heart. And Saprikios, the religious brothers, replied, I will never forgive you. Because the other brother, the, the irreligious brother, said to him, I forgive you with all my heart, please forgive me. And Saprikios, the religious brother, said, No, I will never forgive you. And as the executioner lifted the sword to cut off his head, the most gracious God, observing the scene, abandoned him. In other words, he lost grace. And Saprikios asked the soldier, Why do you want to kill me? Why are you lifting up your sword? What's going on? Like he just lost himself. The soldier said, you mean to say after all this time you don't know why? Because you will not worship the idols. Saprikio said, is that, is that why you're torturing me? I deny Christ and I worship the idols. Now you might say there as well, like it just doesn't make sense if he was being tortured. People become spiritually blind. Spiritual blindness has no logic. Observe ourselves. When we are in a spiritual darkness, we, we distort the truth, we manipulate, we don't even know what's going on. So this is not, to me, this is, I see this every day, either in others or even in, in, in myself. So we have to always um, be careful of this hate because when we lose the grace of God, then we lose our minds. Uh, as soon as he said this, they stopped the execution. He denied Christ and went with the devil, says St. Cosmas. Nikiforos, the irreligious brother, seeing the angels, so God opened his spiritual eyes, and he actually saw the angels who stood by holding a golden crown, said to the executioner, I am a Christian and I believe in my Christ. Then he said to Saprikos, of course, remember, the angel was holding the crown. Some of you might say, how can you give him a crown if he wasn't going to forgive his brother? The crown was there if he forgave his brother and was killed. If he didn't forgive his brother, the crown would not be given to him even if he was killed. Then he said to Saprikios, forgive me my brother and God will forgive you. So now he's the irreligious brother saying to the one that was supposedly religious, I uh, forgive me my brother and God will forgive you. And immediately the executioner cut off Nikiforos's head and it was received by the angels who took it to paradise. This is why we also, we who are pious Christians, should love our enemies and should forgive them. 
We should feed them. We should give them drink. We should pray to God for their souls and then say to God, my God, I beg you to forgive me as I forgive my enemies. Christ said that too. Our Father who art in the heavens and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. If we do not forgive those around us, God will not forgive us our sins even if we die for Christ, as it says here. My God, I beg you to forgive me as I forgive my enemies, St. Cosma says. That's, what, that's a, a prayer that we should say. But if we don't forgive our enemies, even if we shed our blood for the life of Christ, we go to hell. I don't know. If, I don't think there's anything more to say about that. I think that's, um, that's why it's important to read the lives of saints. The greatest gift, now we go to scripture. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and, but have not love, I've become sound in brass or a clang in cymbal. In other words, empty. Bang, 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 like that. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. That's why when you remember the talk that I did a few about a year ago where I said that even the saints that had gifts, even if they had the gift of prophecy, even if they healed, even if they had clairvoyance, doesn't matter, they knew that if they did not have love, that those gifts are worthless. And that's why a lot of them would be scared of pride and would ask God to take those gifts away. So the saints didn't count their gifts as being the most important thing. They actually looked at their gifts as a burden, something that was difficult to, to deal with because then they had to worry more about their pride. That's why a lot of them used to run away. And it says here, St. Paul continues, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, which is what St. Cosmas said, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So here we come to something else, which is why people don't progress. Not just humility, not just to work on egoism and other things that I said in repentance, but to have love of our neighbour. If we do not have love, we're going to go nowhere. So here, when someone reads this epistle and is making some effort, they're going to say, well, even if I fast, even if I pray, even if I give money to the poor, and even if I give my own blood and whatever I give, it doesn't matter if I build churches. But if I haven't got love, I've got nothing. That's what the saints had in their minds and that's what kept them humble. The saints built churches, built monasteries, saved souls. But they examined themselves and said, do I have love? If I haven't, then it's all for nothing. Number two, Psalm 50, the famous... You leaving us? You going? Aren't you going to stay? Hmm? You want to stay, don't you? Bye-bye. Psalm 50. It's interesting. I did that on purpose. It's interesting that um, even though I was speaking to them in front of a whole group, like if I went and focused on this person or this person in front of everyone, we become all embarrassed and 
kind of nervous and this, but they don't. Why? Because that's what Christ says, to become humble like a child, simple, so they don't get affected when they're young, as they grow up, unless they're worked on. And it's interesting, we should look at that and say, that's what God wants from us, the humility. Because a lot of times, intimidation, like a girl, woman, who's intimidated by a beautiful woman, or a man who's intimidated by another guy who says he's got a, a muscly body or something like that. All these intimidations, all these jealousies come from pride. So, Psalm 50, line 17 to 19, which is a very famous part which we read the Psalm 50, which is the one that Saint, uh, the prophet David wrote after he had committed two, two great sins, murder and adultery. For if thou hadst desired sacrifice, I had given it. With whole burnt offerings thou shalt not be pleased. A sacrifice unto God is a broken spirit, a heart that is broken and humble God will not despise. Now, to understand that, what's his whole burnt offerings? Well, the Jews used to offer animals to be sacrificed. And even that practice became an idol to them. They began to think that that was the most important aspect of their religious life, was to give those sacrifices. And Christ is saying through Prophet David, uh, that's not really what I'm interested in. I'm, what is the greatest sacrifice is not the animals, even though they're commanded to do that by Moses. That's a part of their, their rituals, their, their um, law. But the reason for those things comes to the, the main reason, the main um, thing that God wants from us. A sacrifice unto God is a broken spirit. In other words, a broken spirit a heart that is broken and humbled, God will not despise. Similar to what I read before. God is looking for a contrite soul, heart. That means a person who has repentance and humility. The Jews were required by law, in other words by God himself, to offer sacrifices to him. But they lost the spirit of the law and base their religious life on dry rituals, practices and traditions. Washing of hands, some of these were not even from God. Washing of hands and utensils, the fasting, the tithing, and most of all, the keeping of the Sabbath. We know from the Bible when we read it, how crazy they would become when they would say, oh, the only thing they could find in Christ, oh, he broke the Sabbath, he healed on the Sabbath. Because they ignored the more important things, they became enemies of God. When people just focus on these rituals or these practices, they become enemies of God. That's what I said before. So it's the same. You might say, oh, well, they keep the Sabbath. What do Orthodox Christians do today? They keep certain external things. How to venerate an icon. No oil on fast days. You know, you, you meet some Christians. The first thing they say is, is today no oil. Is it oil? Is it no oil? Oil. Oil. No oil. Oil. No oil. And it's my head, my head is like it's going to secrete oil from um, going crazy. And this is the same as them. The Sabbath. The Sabbath. The Sabbath. The Sabbath. All the time. This is what's called Phariseeism. When we just focus on, on practices. And as I said, God wanted them to sacrifice 
the animals, whatever they used to do. I don't know much about it, but they used to sacrifice. He wanted that. That was his law that he gave through Moses. But not to have it as the most important thing, because all that had one purpose, to create in us a contrite and humble heart. So this disease led them to crucify Christ. Now we go to another gospel section. Remember what I said to you earlier on in the talk, how Christ spoke very harshly to them, not even to fornicators, not even to adulterers, not even to tax collectors did he speak really like this. And when he took the, the, the whip and went into the temple and overturned the temple, it was to do with them again. Look, you know, look at the way you, you, you make out that you're religious, he's saying, and you've got the place here looking like a, a marketplace, the temple. Woe to you. Woe means disaster, destruction. That's what woe means, where in Greek. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. There's that word again. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and come in and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy and faith. In another gospel it says and passed by justice and love of God. So, what's this tithe? Tithe, mint, anise, and cumin. That's herbs. They had taken the law of Moses of the 10% so um, to heart that they even do 10% of their herbs. So if the parsley had 10 leaves, they would take one out and give it to the temple because one-tenth. Now, does Christ tell them not to do that, even though it's fanatical and silly? You know, that to go to that extent. Yes, you give one-tenth, but even of the herbs, is a bit too much. So um, he doesn't go against that. He says, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Okay, if you want to give the 10% of your herbs, give it. Even though to his own disciples he didn't tell them to do that. Give it. But how about the more important things? Justice, mercy and faith. Or in other words, why do you pass by justice and love of God? Justice meaning love of your neighbour. So he says, to, he says to them, you're forgetting love of your neighbour and love of God. That's the most important thing. Why didn't he go against them? The same reason I don't go against the no oil people. Because... If you go against them, then they'll think you're a heretic. So what you do is you say, so when they go on, they go, no oil and oil, no, no oil and oil. Like I've got one woman who rings me up. The first thing she says is, today we're allowed fish. I go, okay. Tomorrow's no oil. Okay. And the Russians, they have oil. I go, okay. But the Greeks don't have oil. Yes. Okay. Once you say something, and then she'll start saying, heretic, heretic, you're, you're, a, you know, you're against the church, this and that. So we don't want to hear those type of uh, craziness on the phone. So what do I say? I say, okay, yes, that's, that's true. That's what the calendar says. Do you keep the after three o'clock as well? Because usually on fast days, it's after three o'clock in the afternoon with no water. So no water from the time they wake up and they don't eat, and they eat after Vespers. So I said to them, do you keep that as well? Sometimes they even say yes. Sometimes they say, oh, I can't do that. I go, okay, so you're breaking the canons a bit there. And then I said, um, but then I go to the most important thing and I say, okay, that's good. That's good that you do that. Now, let's look at something else and then we go on to 
other matters. It's like the, some of the old calendars with the 13 days. It's fixed in their mind, the 13 days. And if you go against the 13 days to them, they could attack you. And I've, I've, as I've said to you, I've been attacked in the past where I've been called a Latin dog. That was one of my favourites. The Latin dog, heretic, a papist, etc., etc. So you can't say to them, like Christ couldn't say to them, you're overdoing it by taking one parsley leaf and giving it to the church, to the synagogue. He didn't go against them because it was so dear to them. So he said, it's okay, do that. So with those who are obsessed with the 13 days, you don't start on that, you start on other things. And that's why Elder Philothos Zervakos, beautifully in his epistles, he was pro the old calendar, even though he was part of the official church, he said that uh, the, the calendar makes no difference if you've got no love. See? So he said, if you've got no love, then even if you keep the correct calendar, then it's worthless because that's what it says in the Bible, that's what the Holy Fathers say. And a lot of these people who are obsessed, as I said before, once you become obsessed over a certain thing, whether it's no oils, whether it's the 13 days, or whether it's one parsley leaf, you begin to hate those around you and you begin to think that you are holy. And Christ did not want to appear that he was against the law of Moses, of the one-tenth, because he couldn't explain to them Okay, yes, Moses said one-tenth, but, you know, that's, you're a bit overdoing. Didn't, he didn't do that. He goes, okay, keep that. How about love of God? How about love for your neighbour? Then he says, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides, tifli, blind guides, who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. In other words, you go to the length of, like, I don't know, maybe they were straining for their wine if a mosquito got in. So they'll strain the, the strain the wine or whatever they were doing to get the mosquito out. So they're saying you go to the level of looking at even something which is as small as a mosquito and you swallow a camel. It's like an expression. It says you worry about the mosquito, but yet at the same time you're swallowing a camel. In other words, you're doing something which is far worse sin. So all you're worried about is, the, is your herbs, the one-tenth, but yet which is like a mosquito compared to it. Like, like he, let, he let them consider it a sin. But even not fasting, it's still a sin. So we have to, we have to choose, try and keep the fast. However, we don't just have that and forget about the more important things, which is love of God and love of neighbour. It's, it's like you're swallowing a camel. Well, you're not swallowing a mosquito in your wine, but you're swallowing a camel. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Why does he jump to that all of a sudden? So he says, you worry about these little things, like he says in another part, Christ says, you worry about the speck in your brother's eye, but look, you've got a log in your own, meaning you look at your brother's little sins, but you don't look at the big sins that you're doing. Why does he jump suddenly to, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace? Because he's trying to tell them the reason why they got to this level is because of vainglory. Because, you see, you love to show off and be first in the synagogue, like the Pharisee was, where he would go out the front and pray. And he's trying to say to them, your disease, the way that you got to this stage where you're worrying about parsley or cumin or anise or mint, is because of vainglory. 
And hence, in other words, hypocrisy. And hence why Christ said for prayer, hypocrisy. Fasting, hypocrisy. Almsgiving, hypocrisy. Interpretation. The Pharisees would make a tithe of the most insignificant items, supposedly to avoid transgressing the law. I was scared they're going to say, oh, if I don't give one-tenth, I'm going to be going against the law of Moses, which is against the law of God. And if someone were to accuse them of concerning themselves with trivia, if someone was to go up to them and say, look, this is a bit too trivial, they would say um, they would defend themselves by citing the law of Moses. That's why the same with the, the fasting people. If you say to them, well, you know, this, they go, no, no, the canons say it. So you can't really go from that side. So... They would defend themselves by citing the law which commands the people to give to the priest as an offering tithes of everything. Therefore Christ reproached them as foolish for ignoring, for disdaining the greater commandments while demanding strict observance to the lesser, even to the point of giving one-tenth of their herbs." Christ didn't reprimand them for keeping such a trivial practice of giving one-tenth of their herbs so that he does not appear to be in opposition to Moses. That's what's called discernment. He says that they strain out a gnat, a mosquito, meaning that they keep guard over the slightest sin while they swallow the camel, that is, disregard the great sins. The Lord, therefore, is saying... Just as you do not neglect the smaller matters, so you should also concern yourself with judgment and love of God. They were unjust, ruining orphans and widows. They weren't taking care of orphans and widows, which they were supposed to. Perhaps it seems to me, says St. Theophilact, since there are two types of love, love of God and love of neighbour, he's suggesting these two loves when he speaks of justice and the love of God. So when he says you pass over justice and love of God, justice means love of your neighbour and obviously love of God. So Christ was trying to pull them towards that direction but not going against them for the other thing because they would then accuse him and things like that. Woe to you, we continue the Bible, woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. And St. Theophilact explains and says, preserving the tradition of the elders, the traditions of the elders, the Pharisees would wash the cups and the plates in which their food and drink were to be placed. But you must cleanse the inside, that is the soul. Christ is telling them, Okay, yes, there are commandments. Wash the cups and the dishes, etc., etc., before you eat whatever they. I don't, I don't know what the practices are, but that's what they. That that that's what they had then. And it says it's a tradition of the elders. I'm not even sure if it's a commandment of Moses. To be truthful, I get confused with what's from Moses and what's from the. But he, I think Theophilactir is saying that it's a tradition of the elders. It means it was handed down by elders, not necessarily that it was from God. But it was a practice that they had. Just like today in the Orthodox Church, for example, fasting before communion. Some churches say seven days, some say three days. Manathos, three days without oil, but then some of them change that. These are just practices not necessarily given by the church. 
But again, a wise person doesn't go against that because then you will make these people react who believe that these things are important. So Christ is not going to go against them for their practice of washing cups and plates, but he says, okay, you want to wash your plates and cups, how about your soul? How about your inside? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness, like the graves. When you go to a cemetery, you see beautiful polished graves, nice granite and all that, but inside are dead bones and disease. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous, back to the hypocrisy, you appear righteous to men, you look fantastic on the outside, pious, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. When did Christ speak like that to the pagans? Where did Christ speak like that to the, those who were prostitutes or other people? Obviously, he reprimanded them in certain ways, but never did he speak like that. Why? Because, as I said early on, hypocrisy is the worst disease for a Christian to have. The explanation, for they were eager to appear attractive, that is correct in their external condition, in their practices, just like tombs that are whitewashed, but within they, the Pharisees in other words, are full of every uncleanliness and rotten works. So we can appear spiritual, we can come to church, we can do our cross, we can commune, we can even confess, and inside of us, if we're full of evil and hate, we don't forgive those who have offended us, then we are exactly what Christ is describing here. Outsidely, outside, sorry, we look pious, spiritual, holy, religious, whatever, but inside we are full of disease and rotten works. The confessional, the manual of confession, uh, the Saint Nicodemus lists all the Ten Commandments to help the priest. He goes through all the commandments and says to the priest, okay, for commandment one, for idols, this is what it means, commandment two, commandment three, etc., so that the priest knows how to confess those who come to him. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol or a likeness of anything in in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth, you shall not bow down to them who will serve them. In other words, you don't make, like this is exactly when people used to make statues and make them into gods or objects. In Persia, they worship fire, the sun, as gods. And that's what the second commandment is. However, St. Nicodemus says a little bit more than that. We can also take it a bit, one step further. He says, and listen to this, which when I read it, I was so happy that I found it. As many, this is St. Nicodemus's, the Athenite's uh, interpretation of this count. He says the other things too about the idols, but he says, as many as have hypocritical piety rather than true piety, and all those who limit piety to external things and neglect the weightier matters of the law, such as justice and mercy and faith, and faith transgress this commandment. In other words, those people who appear religious are hypocrites because they limit their spirituality to these external things. That's they say that's as far as spiritual life goes, the externals. 
He says, and they forget about the weightier matters, meaning love of God and love of neighbour. He goes, those people transgress this commandment. They are bowing down to idols. In other words, they're making practices idols. We do not make practices idols. And number four, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. This is the now a Sabbath example. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So Christ was going through the cornfields, they were hungry, and his disciples began to eat the corn. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, so in other words, now here they're saying, your disciples are not keeping the Sabbath where you're not supposed to do work. I heard some of them even today, some, some of the strict Jews, they turn the light on from before the time so they don't do work by turning on the light. Now don't laugh because uh, in the Orthodox Church there's just so many stupidities that it's similar. People just take it wrong, as I said before. This is where we don't understand the essence of the spiritual life. So here, the Jews, they, had, they made an idol of the Sabbath to keep the Saturday holy, not to do any work. That's where Christ said to him another time, you hypocrites, if your animal falls into a ditch, wouldn't you get it out on the Sabbath? Don't you give water to your animal on the Sabbath so it doesn't die of thirst. So why then do you give water to the animal on Saturday but you don't care about doing good to your neighbour on the Saturday? See, all the time against religious hypocrisy. And that's when he, he answers back and says, but he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now, Christ doesn't go against the Saturday. He didn't even go against their fanaticism of the Saturday because he knew that that's in their head, that that's what they've got. So he says, Prophet David, who you look up to, when he was hungry, he did something which was not legal to do, it was, not, it was against the law, that he went into the temple and he uh, took this, I don't know what the show bread is, there must be some rituals that the, that the Jews had in those days. He took the bread and gave it to his own disciples, to mean to the David did, because they were hungry. He says, why don't you go against that? But you look up to Prophet David, so why don't you go against that? He broke the Sabbath, he broke a law, not the Sabbath, he broke a law. Then Although, so this is what Saint Theophilus says, although David was a prophet, he should not have eaten the showbread, for it was not permitted for it was only permitted for priests to eat them. Go back to the Bible. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And Saint um, Theophilus says, nevertheless, because of hunger, he and those with him could be forgiven. Christ says to the Pharisees, the prophet David can be forgiven. Because they were hungry. And Christ says to the Pharisees, Was it not right to show mercy to men who were hungry? Isn't it right? Isn't it, is, is it wrong to give water to your animals on the Sabbath? See, he's catching them out 
on there, but doesn't go against the rule, doesn't go against the law. And the last one, then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So now they find another fault. The new fault is that they're not washing their hands when they eat. As, and as Saint Theophilus says, as a custom from ancient tradition, the Jews did not eat with unwashed hands. That was a rule that they had. Seeing the disciples disdain this tradition, they thought that the disciples held the elders in contempt. In other words, the Pharisees were accusing the disciples of Christ of transgressing the commandment of the elders. In other words, this was not a law of Moses. This was just a practice that they had made up themselves. The disciples had been taught to apply themselves to virtue alone, not to busy themselves with anything else. Christ didn't, didn't tell them to keep those rules. He says, virtue, look at your soul, look at humility and love. Christ was going to the essence of the spiritual life. Therefore, they simply ate without the business of washing hands. The Pharisees wanted to find something to ridicule Christ and his disciples, and they focused on this thing. Not able to accuse the disciples of transgressing the law, the Pharisees found fault in them in that they transgressed the tradition of the elders, that they're washing their hands. And then St. Theophilus says, for it is not written in the law to wash one's hands up to the elbow. This is but a tradition passed down to them from the elders. This was not a law of Moses. This they made up themselves and it just crept in and they, and they held it. They held to the rule. Did Christ go against that rule? No, he didn't go against that rule. Um, that, that particular practice because they'll go crazy, frantic. They will attack him. He left that alone and that's when Christ uh, gives the... Um, where is it here? Oh, sorry, it goes on. He answered and said to them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honour your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honour his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. What the Pharisees did, because they were um, greedy for money, There was a law, the law said you've got to take care of your parents. In other words, you've got to give money to your parents and help them. The Pharisees wanted the money for themselves. So what they did is they made up a rule, which wasn't even a, a proper rule, and they said a child can say to the parent, if the parent goes up to a child and says, can I have some money, the child can say... I give this money as a gift to the temple. And if he does that, he doesn't have to give it to his parents. So Christ doesn't go anything about the hand washing. He leaves that alone, even though it's not part of the law of Moses. It wasn't important. He leaves it alone. He goes, How? okay, you're talking about washing of hands, but why do you make people not take care of their parents, which is a law of Moses from God, in other words. 
The Pharisees had accused the disciples of transgressing the tradition of the elders. He in turn lays against them a far more serious charge, that of transgressing the law of Moses. For the law says, honour your father and your mother, but you are teaching sons to say to their parents, the money you ask from me is a gift to God. For the Pharisees were deceiving the sons, persuading them to dedicate supposedly to God what they possessed, while the Pharisees devoured what was dedicated, and, their, and the sons ignored their parents. The Lord then lays this charge against them that for the sake of profiteering, they transgress the law of God. Does that make sense? So what is the answer to that? Hypocrites. Well did the Isaiah prophesy about you saying, now this is such a five lines which gives the meaning of what I'm saying for the last hour, whatever it's been. He says, These people draw near to me with their mouth. They honour me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He didn't say to them directly, even though he's God, he didn't say to them directly because they wouldn't be able to cope with it. He didn't say to them, you are following a commandment of man of the washing of hands. Because as I said, they would have gone completely mad. He says, okay, I'm not going to say it, but I will say what Isaiah the prophet says since you say that you look up to him, since you recognise him. See, Christ is using discernment. He couldn't expose who he was fully. Slowly, slowly he did it. As if now Christ could say to them, I am the one who gave the law to Moses. That was too much for them to bear. So he does everything slowly and using other ways. Sometimes, this is where some fanatics, some zealots in the church say, we have to speak the truth. And when you say to them, but if you say that, it's just going to cause scandals and problems. Because it doesn't matter. The truth has to be said. We have to say this and have to say that that's wrong and this is wrong and that's wrong. Yes, but Christ himself did not even do that. Christ himself didn't go against the, the directly and say to the, to the Jews about the commandments of men, meaning the washing of the hands. He uses the prophet Isaiah and does it in a indirect way, not even himself saying that he is God. These people draw near to me with their mouth. In other words, people pray, supposedly praying to God with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but in their heart they're far from me. Remember what I said in talk 39 on prayer and talk 40? The, the heart is to be, con the words connected with the heart, with the feeling. Words on their own is not prayer. has to be connected with feeling. That's what Christ is saying here. And in vain they worship me. He goes, all the worship that you do is in vain. Well, he's talking about prophet Isaiah. They know that he's referring to God. But Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He didn't go against them for the hand washing directly. He's just saying what prophet Isaiah says. 
then the Lord gives the Jews a sharp rebuke, also bringing forward the prophet as their accuser. He doesn't accuse them. He allows the prophet to accuse them. Christ shows that the Pharisees were transgressing the law of God, for they were evil, and by their evil deeds they had distanced themselves from God, and so were speaking the words of God only with their mouth, which is what the majority of Orthodox Christians do today. If we look at ourselves, we will notice that a lot of times when we're praying, we're praying with our mouths only. When that happens, we condemn ourselves. That's, that's okay, as long as you condemn yourself and say, I can't believe it, I spent 20 minutes praying today and I felt nothing. So you do your cross and you say, God, forgive me. That's still better than walking off like the Pharisee in the parable and saying, today I prayed for 20 minutes, God must be pleased with me. A contrite and humble heart, God will not despise. Even if you just offer that little 20 minutes and we admit that it was worthless, but we say, God, forgive me, that counts more than someone who prayed 20 minutes supposedly with their, uh, and believed that they did something really great. The study Bible says for this part, Christ shows that the commandment of God cannot be superseded, in other words, cannot be replaced by man's religious traditions. You can't take certain practices and, and say that that is more important than the commandments of God. When he had called, then we continue on with the Bible, when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man. Now he goes into the spirit, like even deeper. Because I said, you know, or because you eat with dirty hands and you're scared that you're going to get defiled, supposedly, it says, he says here, understand this, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, did you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered them and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. They are not based. They are like plants that haven't got roots because they're not abide, and they're not obeying the essence of my law, love of neighbour and God. They're only their roots are really shallow, which means they're just practicing these little rituals and a couple of things, whether they are man-made or whether they're even from God, like the Sabbath and other things tithing, but they just keep to that only. He goes, that's they are. Uh, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. He calls them blind, and those who follow him follow them are blind. And they both fall into the ditch. The ditch means they fall into deception. The ditch means they fall into great sins. The ditch is they fall away from God. And the conclusion, what did Christ and the saints condemn in all the things that we just read? Vainglory, pride, egoism, hypocrisy, Phariseeism, in other words, self-righteousness, fanaticism, obsessiveness, 
hate for one's neighbour, judging one's neighbour, the absence of love and mercy, not forgiving one's enemies. So, what's the answer to the question I posed last month? In other words, if Christians are praying, fasting and giving alms, then why are they not improving spiritually? And from the examples above, we can see that Christ and the Holy Fathers and the saints, the apostles, etc., they condemn prayer, fasting, almsgiving, the keeping of rituals and traditions. If there is an absence of humility, love of neighbour, love of God, mercy, repentance. If they don't exist, it's all worthless. When one becomes obsessed with certain aspects of religious life, such as rituals, practices, traditions, this leads to one becoming judgmental. In other words, they either secretly or openly condemn their neighbours. They become fanatical, pharisaical, deceived, demonic, and a tendency to preach to others and believe that they're confessors or whatever. So we can say for the old calendar, for example, these 13 days. Yes, the old calendar is correct. The new calendar was imposed on the church by... Uh, masons and other crazy people to make union easier and other things that are there. However, those people who follow that strictly and say this is the right way have that as being above everything else. A woman in church once, there was a, there was a, a young woman and, an, and it was in church and she was standing near an older woman in church. And during a certain part of the liturgy, the Greeks tend to kneel down at the consecration. Uh, Russians don't do that. And, you know, anyway, um, I don't even know really what's the correct, but some Greeks practice that. They kneel down during the, the thine own of thine own, when the Holy Spirit comes down. Russians will, kneel, will prostrate after, I think. But on Sundays they don't. Anyway, so this young woman... She uh, kneeled down during that part because that's how she learnt. The woman next to her became uh, like possessed and she goes, you don't kneel. No, you don't kneel for this part. Like that. And grabbed her and said, get up. So that's an example of a person. She obviously read it somewhere that you don't kneel. She probably read it somewhere. And that's it. It became for her that she became the Hawkeye. She, was, she would be looking out whoever in the church is kneeling down. And, and I think she used to like to sit upstairs where the women sit on the top balcony. And if you want to have some imagery, you can imagine her using one of those SWAT ropes to come down quickly if she saw someone in the church sort of going down the stairs, Right? She would throw over a rope and while she's harnessed and run after and tell the person not to kneel down during that time. It's exaggerated, maybe, but when a person's obsessed, anything can happen. Example two, proper order of venerating icons, movement, church. There are certain practices. Russians tend to know them well, to the bows, etc., when to bow in church, when not to bow, when to move, when not to move, etc., etc., in the Greek church, it tends to be a free-for-all. Everyone does whatever they want. And um, then uh, there are... Yeah, but, of course, there are rules. Now, if someone gets the book and finds out what the rule is and all of a sudden they become obsessed, that becomes the most important thing. That's not how you venerate the icon. 
That's not when you venerate the icon. That's not how you bow. That's not what you do. Fasting rules, I've already spoke about that, where people look out for the practices. Now, there are some monasteries, good monasteries, who don't even keep the three o'clock because they can't do it. Their monks and nuns can't do it because they do so much work that there's no way that they can wake up in the morning, do a whole service, have no breakfast, no water, no nothing, work all day and wait to have some water and a bit of bread or whatever they're going to eat after three o'clock. Can't be done. But of course the fanatical person can't understand that, just like the Pharisees said about Christ eating corn when they were hungry because they were doing it on the Sabbath. And he says, but how about mercy? How about Prophet David? He ate when he shouldn't have eaten, etc. So people don't even look at that. They say, no, no, they shouldn't eat. They shouldn't eat. The canon says three o'clock. So you go to a monastery where they work, and some of them work extremely hard. Like I went once to Mount Athos, and they were building a, a what's called like a, a ramp in the ocean where they were putting rocks, like a long, so that the boat comes in, like a jetty, I don't know what you call it, out of rock, and the monks were carrying them. I'll tell you a secret, they eat oil on Wednesdays and Fridays because if they don't, they would become part of the jetty themselves. They would, they would become one of the rocks because they would die. But then if, but don't tell the others that, the ones with the no earls, because they'll say that, that monastery is heretical. Like the when they say about Russia, and they say, oh, Russians eat fish. And I said to you last time on certain days, and I said to I said to him, go you go up and live up there, in Siberia, and see if you can do it. That's why they eat. Uh, they need to have fish, fat, etc., because it's it is really harsh climate. But people don't know. They said understand. That's what Christ said. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Understand how they're going to do that. How are those monks going to work? How are the people in Siberia going to live? How's this? How's that? No, you have to eat after three o'clock, or you have no oils and things like that. And that's what I'm saying. That is fanaticism, and these people we call them the the oil police. Okay, so they actually are on the hunt. <laughs> so if if you're at home and if you do. If you're not well and you, you do have oil, whatever you do on Wednesdays and Fridays, draw the blinds so they don't see you because I'm sure you'd be plastered on the internet as being a breaker of the um, fast. Now, preparation for Holy Communion, as I said, it's got to the stage today that most churches believe that preparation for Holy Communion is fasting only. The Russians do have the, the confession, but even if you say one sin, that's enough, you can still commune. In the Greek church, you can commune without confession, but they do encourage it. It's very hard to confess everyone of hundreds of people that commune sometimes. But the main thing what I'm trying to say here is it's got to the stage where today the preparation for Holy Communion is fasting. That's it. So there's some monasteries overseas where some people went and the abbot there was so much into the fasting, didn't ask them if they repented. He said to them, have you eaten? How many days have you held? They go, uh, one. They go, no, three days, no oil. So they went again. They got there. They did three days. And they went to commune. And then the abbot said, do you have any olives? And he said, yeah, but that's fine. No, I classify that as oil, right? So they couldn't commune. So they had to do another three days. So this is where it got to the stage 
where it's become crazy. In Mount Athos, for example, when they were at a bit of a spiritually, spiritual decline, when they were at a lower level, they believed, a lot of them, the, the ones there, the fathers, you have to do three days without oil to commune. And you don't fast on Saturday without oil because you only fast no oil on Great Saturday. So the monks didn't commune on Sunday. So on the day of the resurrection, they didn't commune because they weren't allowed to keep the Saturday without oils. So they would commune on Saturday after they fast Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and commune Saturday. And then um, Elder Haralambos, the Nusiatis, came along and said, but Sunday's the day of the resurrection. How can you not? And he had to slowly, you know, and St. Nicodemus as well, he wrote a book on frequent communion and said that these practices are man-made. They're not really even in the canons. Yes, there has to be some fasting to some degree, but if someone keeps all the fasts, you know, there's all this, and that's why they would only commune every, every month, some of them. Every month they would commune because the monks that were old or sick couldn't keep the three days, so they were only allowed to commune sometimes. So this is what's called uh, keeping the Sabbath, the same as what the Pharisees had. And um, we've talked about the 13 days. Now, the style of icons, some churches, some old calendars groups have had schisms because the icon wasn't in the correct tradition. So I think there was some big problem about uh, icon of the resurrection where Christ is holding a flag or something like that. And they said, this is not traditional. And then they broke up. So the church split. But yet we have some of our greatest saints who pray, oh, and also Western, if they're Western, if they're drawn in a way which is like Catholic-y, and yet we have um, icons that were Western that gave off myrrh. And we have saints in Russia, Saint Nectarius, who, had, who prayed in front of these icons even though they weren't traditional. Obviously we try to keep to it, but you don't make a schism and run away from the church. The old believers of Russia... When there were reforms a few centuries ago, they, they started to change some things to be closer to the Greek church. And one of them was the cross, because they, they crossed themselves like that. We changed it. They said, no, we should do it with the three fingers. They didn't like that. And then there was the processions around the church, the old way you go clockwise. But when they changed it to the modern practice, they did it anti-clockwise. They didn't like that. Prosphora for liturgy. The new way was five prosphora the priest uses. The old way was seven prosphora. And there's a few other changes of bows and when you bow and when you don't. And because of those practices, none of them are dogmatic, by the way. None of them have anything to do with dogma. There was a whole schism of the old believers in Russia. Because they became obsessed. And to this day, as I said, an old believer, the, the, a lot of them there, they just, uh, their main basis of their spiritual life is that they do their cross properly, how they sit and stand in church, all their bows, everything's perfect. But they forget the weightier matters of the law, which is love of neighbour and love of God. And as I said, the last example, eight, and we finish, many heretics... Heresiarchs, schismatics were people who deep down were Pharisees. 
even though they appeared to be holy, and even though a lot of them, like Arius, was an ascetic, and even though a lot of them were, were great fasters and prayers in the desert, they were the ones who, uh, inst- who created schisms and heresies. Uh, and the best example of that would be the Pharisees who crucified God. Okay, we will continue after the break um, for, for those who are able to endure. I know some of you have reasons to come late, but I do prefer that people come for the service to make an effort. Of course, as I said, those who have real excuses, that's okay, God knows. But some of you are lazy and just want to hear talks. Talks on their own without grace is mm, not good. You can become deceived. We need grace. That's why I do the service beforehand. Actually, I just read recently, I didn't even know, but I was doing the same practice. St. Cosmas, before he would preach, when he would go to village to village around Greece, he would do a paraclesis or a vespers or something, an unction, and then he would do the, his talk. Why? To get the people sanctified, full of grace, and then they can become receptive to listen to the word of God. The word of God without grace is demonic. It leads to deception. It leads to disaster. So if I would like you to make an effort to come. Okay, you can have the um, sandwiches. So, continue on with the um, talk. Why is there a lack of or absence of spiritual progress? So we've already established the reason why people do not progress, all of us, a lot of times, is because of vainglory, pride, hate, judging, egoism, Phariseeism, mercilessness when we don't show mercy. All these are an obstruction to spiritual life. There are some who don't know that. But there are also many who do know that. There are many who do know that, and yet they don't care, they don't repent about it, they don't feel pain about it, and they just continue on that way. So the question comes, why is it that this occurs? Why is it if we know hypocrisy is bad, why then do we still do it? If we know that egoism is bad, why then do we still do it? I'm not saying that we should get rid of hypocrisy 100% or get rid of egoism, but why aren't we at least um, struggling? Why aren't we at least repenting when we do notice it in ourselves. And the reason for this is that most Orthodox Christians do not really know the aim of the Christian life. There are a lot of opinions in the church today of what is the aim of spiritual life. In in Talk 41, which I call Type 1 Deception, Striving for a High Spiritual State, in there... I went through in a lot of detail that a lot of people, when they read the lives of saints and the writings of the Holy Fathers and read about 
the great high, the, the states that they would reach, they think that they've got to reach the same states. And that's why we said striving for a high spiritual state. So as to reach a high spiritual state as described in the lives of saints, to see dreams, some people, because those saints would see dreams or visions. Some people think that's the aim. If I see a dream or a vision, that means I'm going well. Or to see the light of God. Or to smell some fragrance in the room or coming from an icon. To have miraculous powers. Some people read that and say, the saints had miraculous powers. I need to have miraculous powers. That means that I'm going well. Some people believe that um, because the saints were able to heal, that they would like to be able to lay their hands and heal. Others believe clairvoyance and miracles in general. For example, the, the Protestants, the Charismatics, they believe that the sign of the Holy Spirit is to speak in tongues. Because the apostles spoke in tongues, therefore that is a sign that someone has got God's grace. So that's just a whole mess there. Then we go to type 2 deception, which was, let's talk 42, striving for exalted spiritual feelings. Now the first one was all supernatural things. This one is to do with feelings, to experience extraordinary peace. The saints were so peaceful People think, okay, I'm going to be peaceful, calm. Um, the saints experienced an extraordinary joy in their heart or an extraordinary sweetness, a spiritual sweetness, to experience an extraordinary warmth physically and in the heart, to experience tears and consolation, and in general to experience the grace of God as the saints did. That's what's called type 2 deception and just in general other people as I said before some think that the aim is to be able to pray unceasingly we talked about that in 39 and 40 to have perfect freedom from anger the saints were so free from anger we have to be free from anger and they were free from jealousy and pride completely to be freed from evil thoughts to have love for God completely to be free from sexual passion and not to fall into sins or to hold their virginity whatever to have zeal for orthodoxy to confess the faith to preach to others these are all things that people believe when they read the lives of saints I'm not going to go into all that detail now because we've already, I've already done that but that's what people believe but I think um, one would have to listen to those talks 39, 40, 41, 42 43. But let us now go on to uh, this conversation of Saint Seraphim of Sarov with Nicholas Alexandrovich. Is that right? Matovolov. I hope I'm saying it correct. Any Russians here? Matovolov? Is that his say? Matovolov? Oh no, I hope it's not right because I'm not used to that. Matovilov. Motovilov, is it? Now I've got to undo my... Anyway, Motovilov. Is that right? You sure? Okay. So, I might just stick to Nicholas. So, <laughs> Nicholas Alexandrovich Motovilov was a Russian landowner, so he was rich, a businessman, and most importantly, the spiritual child of Saint Seraphim of Sarov. 
He wrote down many of his conversations with Saint Seraphim, including his favourite, which was called Talk on the Aim of the Christian Life, that occurred in November 1831, which makes it uh, 180 years ago, roundabout, is it? Mm -hmm. In the forest near Sarov. This event has been depicted in several icons of Saint Seraphim and is considered one of modern Orthodox's most important spiritual treasures. The very discovery of Motovilov's manuscript is a great miracle. For about 70 years after the conversation took place, this most valuable manuscript lay buried and completely forgotten and was in danger of being destroyed for it had already been thrown away and was lying under a heap of rubbish in an attic, you know, in the roof, under a layer of bird droppings. He, here it was miraculously found by the famous author S.A. Nihilus, 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 who was searching for whatever he could find of the great Seraphim's life. So this writer wanted to write a detailed life of Saint Seraphim. He knew that this particular person, Nicholas Matov, I'm just going to say it my way, Matovilov, whatever, he, that he was a spiritual child and he was hoping to find some documents or something that will help him in his, to write his life. And uh, he, uh, Nihilus was searching through Matovilov's possessions in the attic and was already beginning to lose hope of finding anything when an exercise book, which was very indistinctly written, attracted his attention. It was like a scribbly thing. This proved to be the memoirs of Nicholas and that is how they came to be given to the world. The memoirs were found in 1902, which is 70 years after the conversation took place, and printed in the Moscow News in 1903. Around the same time, by divine providence, the transfer of Saint Seraphim's relics and his glorification took place. So Saint Seraphim was glorified as an official saint of the whole Russian Orthodox Church in 1903. And let's now go. I've only I've taken parts out. It's very long. It's it's in the book, and I've taken some parts out. I hope I haven't done it injustice, but can't go through all of it. And plus, I don't even understand a lot of it. It was Thursday. The day was gloomy. This is, this is um, Nicholas saying. The, it was Thursday. The day was gloomy. The snow lay eight inches on the ground and dry, crisp snowflakes were falling thickly from the sky when Father Seraphim began his conversation with me in a field near his hermitage. He sat me on the stump of a tree which he had just chopped down and he himself squatted opposite me. And I asked someone to research to find... I mean, that's... But this, this picture here I thought was really nice. And, it's, and you can see there's Matovilov there sitting on the tree and Saint Seraphim's swatting down next to him. I, I really, that was a nice um, picture. It's not, a, um, it's not a strict orthodox icon, so don't tell the ones who are fanatical about it. The, the great elder said, The Lord has revealed to me 
that in your childhood you had a great desire to know the aim of our Christian life and that you continually asked many great spiritual persons about it. Now, Matola says, I must say here that from the age of 12, this thought had constantly troubled me and I had in fact approached many clergy about it, but their answers had not satisfied me. This was, known to, this was not known to the older. So Nicholas, at, from 12 years old, did ponder what is the aim of our Christian life? And he never told the saint that, but the saint had clairvoyance and he knew. And Matovolov was had asked clergy and probably theologians, what is the aim of the spiritual life? Father Seraphim continued, but no one has given you a precise answer. They have said to you, go to church, pray to God, do the commandments of God, do good. That is the aim of the Christian life. Some were even annoyed angry, in other words, with you for being occupied with what they called blasphemous curiosity and said to you, do not seek these things that are beyond you, but they did not speak as they should. And now poor Seraphim will explain to you in what this aim really consists. So his, his desire to know the aim of the Christian life was good. But when he asked the question, the clergy got upset. And Seraphim says that uh, Father Seraphim, we, because he wasn't canonised yet, so when Matovolov wrote this, wasn't that's why he calls him Father Seraphim, and plus it was, he was still alive when he when he wrote this. So uh, Saint Seraphim now goes on: prayer, fasting, vigil, and all other Christian activities, however good they may be in themselves, are not the aim of uh, our Christian life although they serve as the necessary means of reaching this end, a very important means. So Father Seraphim, Saint Seraphim is saying that what we said before, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, etc., good deeds, that's not the aim of the spiritual life, which was what I was trying to say earlier on. All those things are now going to make sense. He says that they are a means to reach the aim. A very important means. The true aim of our Christian life consists in the acquisition of the Holy Spirit of God. As for fasts and vigils and prayers and almsgiving and every good deed done for Christ's sake, they are only means of acquiring the Holy Spirit of God. But take note, my son, only the good deed done for Christ's sake brings us the fruits of the Holy Spirit. All that is not done for Christ's sake, even though it be good, brings neither reward in the future life nor the grace of God in this. That is why our Lord Jesus Christ said, he who gathers not with me scatters. So he's saying here, the aim of the Christian life is to acquire the Holy Spirit, not just to do things dryly. Even good deeds, if not done for Christ... Anyway, I'll let him. I'll let the saint explain. That's it, your godliness. He called. He called Nicholas Matovolos godliness, like the Greeks say about someone. They say evlogimenos, which means blessed. You know, the the saints refer to people like that. Uh, so he used to call him godliness. That's it, your godliness. In acquiring the spirit of God consists the true aim of our Christian life, while prayer, fasting. Vigil, almsgiving and other good deeds done for Christ's sake are 
means merely for acquiring the Spirit of God. So he repeats himself. I asked Father Seraphim, why, what do you mean by acquiring? Somehow I don't understand that. What's, this, what's the word acquiring? And he replied, acquiring is the same as obtaining. And I, and I add, like gaining, for example. You understand, of course, what acquiring money means. People say, I want to make a lot of money. I want to acquire a lot of money. So that's what Seraphim is using here, Father. Saint Seraphim is saying, um, let's use the money as an example because people understand money. Acquiring the Spirit of God is exactly the same. You know well enough what it means in a worldly sense, your godliness to acquire. The aim of, in life of ordinary worldly people is to acquire or make money. And for the nobility, it is in, in, is in addition to receive honours or distinctions and other rewards for their service to the government, like to get an award from the Tsar, for example. Or if you're in Australia, maybe you can get an award, an Australian of the Year. Some people, like they, they, they like that. Or have their name on a placard if they, uh, if they opened up a hospital or if they discovered something. You know, everyone wants to be, uh, have some to be recognised, uh, to acquire awards, to acquire recognition, etc. The acquisition of God's spirit is also capital, but grace-giving and eternal, and it is obtained in very similar ways, almost the same ways as monetary, social and temporal capital. In other words, wealth, investment, assets, etc. People, you know, they, they do the stock exchange. They, they buy stocks, shares. Why? To acquire money. They say gold's good now, to buy gold. Some people think that to buy property. You know, you invest your money, you buy a property, and you hope in 10 years it'll be worth triple, quadruple, etc. Or you put money in the bank. What are they offering now? 6%, 7% depends on the amount. Term deposits. That's all ways of acquiring money. God the Word, the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ, compares our life with a market. And the work of our life on earth, he calls trading and says to us all, trade till I come. Christ actually says, trade till I come. Trade what? To make money. Not that he forbids us to make money. But here he says, trade. You Anyway, that is to say, make the most of your time forgetting heavenly blessings through earthly goods. Earthly goods are good works done for Christ's sake and are also a means for us to receive the grace of the all-Holy Spirit. That's what we're here to do. Not to make, uh, as you know, like the Jews had the thing about the, the whole aim was to keep the Sabbath, or Orthodox who believe the whole aim is not to have oil, there are also people who believe the aim is to make money or to become important or famous. And that's not what Christ meant. He means trade till I come. Earthly goods and good works done for Christ's sake are also a means for us to receive the grace of the Holy Spirit. In the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, when the foolish ones lacked oil, it was said... Go and buy in the market. So Christ gave the parable of the ten virgins. Five were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones didn't have oil in their lamps. 
So he said, Christ in the parable says, go and buy in the market. Market meaning your lifetime. When you're dead, it's too late. While you're alive, go to the market in life, meaning use your life on earth to do good deeds and do all these things to help you obtain the Holy Spirit. But when they had bought, the door of the bride chamber was already shut and they could not get in. Some say that the lack of oil in the lamps of the foolish virgins means a lack of good deeds in their lifetime. That's true. Some interpreters do say that the lack of oil in the foolish virgins' lamps means a lack of good works, which is, and Saint Seraphim says, such an interpretation is not quite correct. Why should they be lacking in good deeds if they're called virgins? Even though foolish ones, virginity is the supreme virtue, an angelic state, and it could take the place of all other good works. It's such a great virtue. So Saint Seraphim says, but they had good works because they were virgins. So why then are they called foolish? I think what they were lacking was the grace of the all-holy spirit of God. These virgins practice the virtues, but in their spiritual ignorance, they suppose that the Christian life consisted merely in doing good works. They were doing good works for the sake of doing good works, just dryly. He, the saint servant says, by doing a good deed, they thought they were doing the work of God, but they little cared whether they acquired thereby the grace of God's spirit. Such a way of life, based merely on doing good works, without carefully testing whether they bring the grace of the Spirit of God, are mentioned in the patristic books, and he quotes from the, from the fathers, there is another way which is deemed good at the beginning but ends at the bottom of hell. In other words, someone can do something which appears to be good but lose paradise. So the virgins did something that was good. They were virgins. But, Seraphim of Sarov is saying, but starting something which appears good doesn't mean you're going to end up in paradise and that's why the door was closed for those five foolish virgins because they lacked oil which is the Holy Spirit. The enemy teach now I love this part here because this is what um, Seraphim of Sorov explains why their virginity was worthless. The enemy or when good works are worthless. The enemy teaches man either not to do any good deeds, so the devil he'll try for us he tries to stop us doing good obviously. And if he can't stop you doing the good deed, then he says, okay, I will praise that person so they can be vainglorious. So the enemy teaches men either not to do any good deeds or to do them out of vanity, out of vainglory. Or what's the better word? But we said it from the beginning. It starts with H. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Or to do them merely for virtue's sake and not for Christ's sake. A lot of people do good deeds, but they don't do them for Christ's sake, which we'll explain about that later. And then Seraphim of Sarov says, apart from the demons trying to stop us to do good works or trying to make us become proud or to do them for virtue's sake and not for Christ's sake, 
Also, our own will, we can't always blame the devil, our own will teaches us to do everything to flatter our passions. Or else, our own will teaches us to do good for the sake of good and not care for the grace which is acquired by it. Now, I've got some examples for that. Prayer can be a good deed. But when it's done with pride, out of anger, the demons leave us alone and even encourage us and flatter us. In both cases, we do not receive grace because it is not for Christ's sake that we are praying. We are praying for the glory of man. So it's not for Christ's sake. We can pretend it is, but it's not. If it's done out of vain glory, then it's not for Christ's sake. The same applies for almsgiving and fasting. We can do it for vain, if we do it for vainglorious reasons, if we do it to show off, it's not for Christ's sake. Now, what I mean by where there are two ways that we are tempted. One is from or three ways really. One is from the demons themselves that come to our minds and praise us. Oh, you're good. Look, look, you're praying. Look at the, you know, etc. So they praise us through our thoughts. The other way is that people can praise us. And the other way is that we praise ourselves. How do we know whether something comes from ourselves or it's from the demons? How do we know that if we've got vainglorious thoughts that it's from ourselves or from the demons. We don't a lot of times because we're not spiritually progressed. It doesn't matter. We don't progress to know that's from the demons, that's from myself, that's from nature. You know, that we don't have that discernment. That comes after many, 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 many years. The main thing is you just notice vainglory is bad. The, um, there's a good example which I mentioned in previous talks many years ago. There was a monk in a monastery and he, was, he used to get hungry in the night. But of course, you know, in the monastery, strict monastery, you're not allowed to eat at times outside of the time of the, of, of, of the food. There are some monasteries where you know, they're, more, they're a bit more uh, lenient, but some monasteries are strict. So this monastery was strict and this monk would come down secretly at night, open the kitchen and eat food. And the abbot, probably enlightened from God, was suspicious and caught him and said to him, you know, how dare you? you what you're doing is wrong and um, this is a very bad thing to eat secretly. It's called secret eating. He gave him a, a penance, whatever it was, and says you are not to go and do that again. Now I can't remember the story for it, but I've, I've got the main essence. Anyway, and I think the abbot perhaps yeah, he locked the kitchen. So what the monk did is that he stole an egg but he didn't have somewhere to cook the egg. So he got his key, which, you know, in the monasteries, you know, they've got big locks and a big gigantic keys and all that, and it had like a ring on the end of it. And he put the egg on the ring, he lit a candle, and he started to cook the egg on top of the candle flame. The abbot, again, enlightened, as I said, I've lost the story a little bit, but that doesn't matter, this is the main essence. 
the Mabbot again was suspicious, caught him. And he said, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing here? And he says, oh, I'm sorry, um, Elder, I'm sorry. The devil made me do it. And suddenly at that time, a voice came from the surroundings and said, that wasn't me, not even I thought of that. Right? <laughs> and what that story is trying to say is that not everything is from the devil and a lot of times what we do is from our own will. But whether it's from the devil or whether it's from ourselves, because we don't know, was I pushed, was it me, was it this, was it that, it's hard to know, why don't we just offer repentance and blame ourselves? And that's what Saint Seraphim's trying to say here. He's trying to say that we can become proud from our own will, we can become proud from the demons. Whatever the whole whatever we do or whatever happens, it's still not doing it for Christ. If we're looking for glory from man, or if we're praising ourselves, etc., then it's worthless the good deeds that we do. Therefore, said continues the saint, the oil is not good deeds but the grace of the all-holy spirit of God which is obtained through them and which changes souls from one state to another. That is, from corruption to incorruption, from spiritual death to spiritual life, from darkness to light, from a dwelling full of passions into a temple of the divinity, into the shining bride chamber of eternal joy in Christ Jesus our Lord, the creator and redeemer and eternal bridegroom of our souls. So the good deeds bring us Help us to acquire the Holy Spirit of God. That's what the oil, the oil is not the good deeds, but from the good deeds, the grace that we receive. Not all good deeds give us the grace. Remember we said that. They love to pray so everyone can see them. They have their reward, Christ says. In other words, that good deed of praying does not give them grace. And that's why I emphasise from last week, last month, and today in the beginning, hypocrisy, 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 vainglory, pride, etc., etc. So what is meant by good deeds? The problem here, I find, is that a lot of times people don't even know what good deeds mean. So, for example, one... Is sending children to religious schools for better education and morals a good deed? So, for example, orthodox parents, because they love their children, they want them to get good jobs, and they say, I'm going to send them to the Catholic school, to a Protestant school, whatever, and they say that that's going to be for them to, for their better, to, to become better people, to become better educated. So, is that a good deed? They're saying that they're doing it so they're children to learn. Yes, it is a commandment that we are obligated to make sure that we teach our children trades or whatever to make them to be able to live. That's from God. We can't just leave our children with nothing. Our job as the parents' job is to help their children and to also protect them morally. So that's a good deed. But is it a good deed to send them to these religious schools where they're praying and get, especially when they're young and they get confused and the child comes home and he's doing his cross with three fingers back to, back to front? Or is it good to have more trust in the Pope and his schools to keep our children morally safe? 
and is a better education of, of more importance than our child's orthodox faith because a lot of people that go to those schools really do get mixed up. I think they've even looked at that where they say that, like for example, mixed marriages where one's this, one's that, the child at the end turns out to be unbeliever. Like that, that sometimes they don't believe anything because there's this conflict between the parents. Anyway, that's another story which we'll talk about that. I have a lot to say about that. St John, Archbishop of Shanghai, was against Orthodox parents sending their kids. Now, some might say, but the schools are immoral and this and that, whatever, whatever. But they don't learn heresy at school. But that needs more, more topic. The, the point is, is that a good deed? Number two, giving money to the poor because it feels good. Some people say, oh, I, re I really feel good when I walk up to someone in the street and give them money. It makes me feel good. Sending your children, for boys, into the altar. That's some parents say, I want them to be in the altar. They can be closer to God and become holy. Even though out of the hundreds and hundreds of altar boys that I've seen, um, when they grow up, you don't even see them at church anymore. But anyway, is it good? Chanting. Some people say, I want to chant so I can chant to God. Or maybe teach, like, let the children learn. Could be good, maybe not. A person that I know, his mum died recently. He said that what they've done is that they've collected $1,500 to give to the... His mother died from cancer, to give to the Cancer Foundation, even though she was orthodox. So, um, that, is that a good deed? Maybe, maybe not. Expensive graves and flowers for our loved ones. People put a lot of money into graves, a lot of money into flowers because they love the person. Is that a good deed? Donations to the church whereby you're acknowledged in magazines. For example, church magazines will say, uh, this week's donors are, you know, Spiro and Helen, well, Magalopoulos or something, have donated a chalice set to the church. Also in some Greek churches, for example, they actually have little placards on, all the, on some of the icons donated from the... Hmm? Plaques, is it? Oh. Um, plaques, sorry. And there, on the icon, or even on the pews, on the chairs, you see like a little thing there. Or, if you don't want to give to the church, you can also donate a park bench in the park. Donated in memory of, you know, whatever. Frangopoulos or someone like that. Um, or Alexandrovich, if they're Russian. Uh, pets, one of my favourite topics. Expensive food and accessories. Like, we don't just buy them like the old days used to just give them scraps. Now you buy them food in the can because you love your dog and your children love the dog or the cat. So you buy them, you know, nice veal with peas and things like that in it and nice gravy. Then you've got to get them the accessories. So you've got to get them expensive pillows and baskets and... Um, dog houses and rubber bones and real bones, I don't know, whatever. Expensive medical treatment. And apart from their usual shots that they have, I saw just the other day that um, one person spent 100000 on his dog, full on, I don't know what he had, open heart surgery, whatever it was, and they're really doing these pet, um, pet um, hospitals with full on uh, medical procedures like humans, 10000 20000 
cost does anyone dare to say anything? But that might be a good. There's a good no, it was worth it because we love our dog. Pet cemeteries. Pet cemeteries is another thing which they have now. They either cremate them or put a, or have a, like a, they buy some ground and they go and visit their pets with their children and things like that. And or some women that are old and rich, instead of giving the money um, to the church to do something good, they give the money to their cats and dogs, like millions of dollars. Abortion. Now, some parents, for example, when they say their young daughter gets pregnant, they might say, look, you know, you're too young and if you have a baby, you're going to waste your life, you're not going to be able to study, etc. you're too young, this and that. So they push them to have an abortion. Of course, some Orthodox Christians already know that that's bad, but you'd be surprised how many Orthodox Christians get tempted and say, um, no, you know, for the sake of my child or whatever, or, you know, or even for the boy, they might say he's too young to get married, etc. So, you know, they look at that as being something that's done out of love. Number nine, so you can see here's a confusion of what's really good and what's not. Not correcting out of love and kindness. Some people say, oh, you know, people, it's a philosophy, just people are free to do what they want as long as they don't hurt anyone. So we don't tell them their fault or judge them. Everyone's free as long as they don't hurt anyone. It's actually like biblical. And they even say don't judge, etc. Not knowing what it means by don't judge. Allowing children to watch TV for educational reasons and for entertainment. You know, you don't want to deprive your child. They have to know who these people are now. All these modern singers and things like that. Euthanasia out of love, of course. Some people, when they really see someone that they love suffering... They might actually say, well, it's not really murder. And allowing or encouraging young people to date, part of life, they say. So parents actually don't mind if their children date. And they said, how else are they going to get married? So they have to really get to know the opposite sex. sex and, and some even say, well, I don't want my children to become gay, so that you actually let them to go out. And some even encourage them to have sex, because that way they're not going to become gay. Is that good or bad? Wedding celebrations. Parents participating in organising and providing money, you know, um, for weddings that are not Christian, with inappropriate music, satanic stuff, say, oh, to make our children happy and things like that. Some even say Christ was at the wedding of Cana. Cana, how do you say? Cana. And they say that he was there. So therefore, that Christ was present what, at, at, at a wedding like they have now. See, and encouraging someone to do yoga. If someone's got some uh, problems, they go, oh, you should do yoga. It's really good. It helps. It helped me. And it's helped so many people, you relax, gives you a positive effect in your life and, you know, it empowers you, etc., etc. Then we have our friend who came from America, Eden Wood. Toddlers and tiaras, remember how she came, that little girl of six years old, all dressed up and some people say, it's fun, they children love to dress up and do beauty contests and things like that. And some Orthodox parents say, well, there's nothing wrong with that because people have lost, they don't know what's good anymore, what's bad. So they look at her and say, that's good because she's famous and they're going to get a lot of money and I want my daughter to be famous, I want my boy to be famous. Encouraging children to display their talents or beauty on the internet. We've said all that. A lot of parents like that because might, maybe one day they might become a Justin Bieber or something like that and they go on talent shows, examples of dancing and singing, all these type of things so that children can become famous and make a lot of money. Look how much that, look, look much that boy's got can't hardly sing and he goes on stage with his jeans half down and he actually gets millions and millions of dollars all because he can't use a belt. <laughs> Helping someone across the road's a good deed. So some people say, look, I do good 
visiting someone in hospital, visiting and helping an elderly person, that can also be a good a, a good deed. And some people just say, you always, you always hear, you know, I hear a lot from Greeks, maybe Russians do it, but because I can't speak Russian, I don't know what they're saying, but, the, but, but because I speak Greek, I know what the Greeks are saying. And they say, the, the most important is to do good, to do good. Maybe that's a good philosophy. They say the most important is to do good. Hmm. Okay, so my next question I'm going to pose is what exactly does Saint Seraphim mean by good deeds as long as they're done for Christ's sake? He says that, and that's how we receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is the most important part. What is meant by good deeds? Now in the book a Night in the Desert of the Holy Mountain, written by Metropolitan Yerothos Vlachos, which is a, a difficult book, but there's some little parts that I found here and there, where he was speaking to a holy elder in Mount Athos that was living up somewhere in the, you know, as a hermit, and he was opening to him about spiritual life, Jesus' prayer, etc. And he said, remember what St. Seraphim said, he said, we acquire the grace from doing good deeds. Fast in prayer, Father. Now, this is, listen to what the elder said. We acquire grace, using the same words as Saint Seraphim, with repentance and the keeping of the commandments of Christ. So we acquire grace with repentance and the keeping of the commandments of Christ. If I end the talk there, that's it really. Repentance and the commandments of Christ together is what brings us the grace of the Holy Spirit. Though some of those things I said are not commandments of Christ. Christ has many commandments, yes, to help people, but there's a lot of things which the world does not even consider a good deed. Like Christ says, if you think of a woman and you fornicate in your mind, you've committed adultery, you shouldn't do that. The world says you can think whatever you want. You're not hurting anyone. As long as you're not hurting anyone, you can go on the internet and, and, and do all virtual reality, fantasy. You know, you can pretend you're a commander. You can kill people. All these type of things. In there, in the world, that is not something that's bad because you're not hurting anyone. But that's not. Christ says one of his commandments are even your thoughts have to be examined. Now... The reason why I came to this talk, sorry, to do this talk, is because of what I, what I read in Elder Macarius of Optina. Just this part, it helped me to put everything into perspective of all the talks that I've been doing. Even though I've probably, I think I've mentioned it right through. Talk 39 on prayer, talk 40 on prayer, 41, 42 on the deceptions, etc., and 43, which was the examining the Pharisees within us. When I read this, I said, this is going to be the theme of my next talk because this is, to me, what helped me. This is what Elder Macarius says. When someone forces himself only toward prayer, while he does not exert or force himself with regard to humility of wisdom, love, gentleness, and all the other independent virtues, the result is much as follows. So, right, so, Elder Macarius is saying if someone just forces themselves in prayer, because we, because we read, because we read, 
Prayer is, and Saint Sermon's going to say it, is one of the greatest ways of receiving the Holy Spirit. And we emphasise that. Without prayer, it's really not very good. So that's what all the talks were based on. However, Macarius says, because he had the discernment, he lived close in our times, and he said, this, if someone just does that, but he doesn't look at humility, love, gentleness, and all the other virtues, the result is much as follows. Sometimes in response to his prayer, divine grace visits him because God in his goodness and love does respond to the petitions of those who call upon him. In other words, even when someone's praying and he's not looking at the other virtues, the other things, the commandments, etc., God can still give grace to some extent because he's good. And so it might be a person who just comes to pray because their child is sick, but he's not even doing a spiritual life, doesn't care about humility, hates their neighbour, this and that or whatever, but God will listen to that prayer. That's what Father Saint Macarius is saying. But because he has not made a habit of training himself in the practice of the other virtues, he either loses the grace he has received, falling because of self-conceit, or else he does not dedicate himself to the grace and grow in it. So a person is praying but does not look at anything else but just prays. God out of his goodness, can, can a lot of times give grace to that person. However, because the person is not struggling to try and cultivate humility and love, the grace that he gets disperses. Because for grace to stay in our hearts, we need humility and love. If we haven't got that, and repentance, if we haven't got that, it goes. So God can still give the grace. Oh, I'm going to give you some good examples. And so the person gets proud and goes, oh, look, God's heard my prayer or God's given me grace. The person gets proud, has no idea about humility, loses the grace. Or he doesn't use the grace which God has given him to cultivate spiritual life. The abode and resting place of the Holy Spirit are humility of wisdom, love and gentleness and the other holy commandments of Christ. And I specifically underlined that there for the first one, commandments of Christ, and I underlined it here. Other holy commandments of Christ. We tend, when we read things, to miss them. And that's the problem. We don't study the word of God. We look at it just through sometimes. Or some of us don't study at all. But that's very important. And the other holy commandments of Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to those who do the holy commandments of Christ. And one of the commandments is humility, another one's love, another one's purity, etc., etc., etc. So the first one, the, the, the monk Manatha said, we acquire grace through repentance and the commitment of the commandments. The second one says, the Holy Spirit can only come and dwell in the heart of a person who keeps the commandments of Christ. Saint Seraphim says in the conversation, I just picked it up where he says, he goes, you may judge how great the power of prayer is, even in a sinful person, when it is offered wholeheartedly by the following example from holy tradition. Once at the there was a mother who lost 
her only son. So when, um, and she came across a prostitute who was still unclean from her last business transaction, one can say, from her last sin, and who was touched by the mother's deep sorrow. So I read it as it says, when at the request of a desperate mother who had been deprived by death of her only son, a harlot whom she just chanced to meet, still unclean from her last sin, and who was touched by the mother's deep sorrow, cried to the Lord, not for the sake of a wretched sinner like me, but for the sake of the tears of a mother, sorrowing for her son and firmly trusting in thy loving kindness and thy almighty power, Christ God, raise up her son, O Lord, and the Lord raised him up. In other words, from the prayer of a prostitute who um, made the prayer from her heart for, because she felt sorry for this woman, the prayer was answered. What does that mean? Does that mean that she's holy? No. What Seraphim of Sarov is trying to say and what Elder Makaris is trying to say is that God listens to Muslims, to Jews, to everyone, to even an atheist who doesn't even believe if he's in desperation can say, please help, and he can be given prayer. It doesn't mean that the person's going well. Prayer can be answered. We've got to remember um, that. And Elder Porfirio says, the prayer should not be said in, as a chore. Some people say, oh, I've got to do prayer now. Not as an inconvenient job. Coercion, in other words, when we force ourselves, you know, like in an oppressive way, Coercion may provoke an action within us and be harmful. So when you're forcing yourself to pray when you don't really want to do it, different when you want to do it, but you're lazy. You say, oh, I'm lazy. I don't feel like it, but I, I want to do it. So you force yourself. That's okay. But when you don't want to do it in your heart and you're doing it because, oh, people are going to think I'm not holy anymore or some other stupid reasons, and people force themselves, that's not good. He says, however, many people have become ill as a result of the Jesus prayer because they coerce themselves. Something happens, of course, even when you do it as a chore, but it's not healthy. What's this something happens? What Elder Porfirius is saying is that something happens means the person might have a spiritual experience even when he's forcing himself. The person might have his prayers answered but it's not healthy because God is merciful and when he sees someone praying with their heart, like the prostitute that was praying with her heart, he grants a lot of times the prayers. But people have a wrong view. They go, oh, you know, um, my, I prayed the other day for something and it happened. So that person themselves think that they're good. No one others to think, well, see, I must be spiritual because God answered my prayer. But we hear here that God can answer a lot of people's prayers, but it doesn't mean that they're going to be saved. Saint Innocent of Moscow says, these then are the ways of receiving the Holy Spirit, namely purity of heart and righteousness. Righteousness, by the way, means keeping the Christ's commandments. Humility, attentive listening to the voice of God, prayer, self-denial, reading and listening to the word of God and communion of the holy body and blood of Christ. Of course, each of these means is 
effectual for receiving the Holy Spirit. Of course, we receive the Holy Spirit from communion, we receive it from prayer, we receive it from doing the commandments, we receive it from reading the word of God. He's saying all that. He says, of course, each of these means are effectual for using the Holy Spirit, but the best and surest way is to use them all together. Then you will undoubtedly receive the Holy Spirit and become holy. And that list, what is it? The commandments of Christ, really. Of course, God commands us to listen to his word. God wants us to, whoever doesn't eat my body and drink my blood. Uh, Christ wants us to um, cultivate humility, keep his commandments, etc. That's all the commandments, and that's what St. Innocent of Moscow is saying. Everything gives us the Holy Spirit. Now, the next part, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptise them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's what Christ said to his disciples as he was about to ascend to heaven. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Go throughout all the world and baptise them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit because baptism brings the person to become a member of the church. But he didn't stop at that because today we bring our children to church, baptise them, as long as you've got your kum there, whatever you call it, the best man, and then you've got that, you go there, you have a little party later, and that's it. They're orthodox Christians. But that's not what, the, what Christ commanded. He says, yes, baptise them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And blessed Theophilus says, what's this all things? We are required to keep all the commandments, not just two or three or one or whatever. All the commandments. That's why Christ says, teaching them to observe, when you baptise them, teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Teach them all the commandments, not just to fast, not just to pray, not just to commune every Easter and Christmas and force the kids. That's another thing, when parents force their children to go and commune, especially when they're teenagers, when they were just out the night before doing every filth under the sun, and then we force them to commune on, uh, on Easter or for Easter or for Christmas or Pascha, whatever. Um, another, is that a good deed? Parents are doing the right thing. They're making their children commune, isn't it? No, it's not the right thing because that's not what's required of Orthodox Christians. It says, baptise in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit and to be a member of the church, teaching them. So when children are baptised as babies, then it's the responsibility of the parents to teach them all that Christ commanded. That's the most important thing, to teach them the commandments. If we're baptised as older people, then as older people, then we are supposed to follow Christ's commandments. All of them. And I love this next one. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. If you see, if you love me, people say, I love God. Remember, we've done that in Talk 42. I love God. Yeah, but you can only love God if you keep his commandments. Do you keep his commandments? No, well, you don't love God. So do we love God? No, not properly, because we don't keep the commandments. The more we try to keep the commandments, and when we fail, we repent, then the more we love God. So when we see people saying, I keep some of the commandments, 
then they don't love God because Christ commanded to keep all the commandments. Now he says, if you do love me and you keep my commandments, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper, capital H, helper. Helper meaning the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. See what we see, what I said in the beginning? Heavenly King, O comforter, the spirit of truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things. O treasure of your good and bestower of life, come and dwell in us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O good one. That's the prayer to the Holy Spirit. We, that prayer is worthless. You can say it millions of times, including myself, if we're not keeping the commandments. And that's what Christ is saying. You love me, you keep my commandments, and I will send you the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. What's, what's the word mean? Keep my word, what? means keep my commandments. The word of God is the commandments of God. And my father will love him. And we, capital W, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. Who's we? So he says, if you love me, you will keep my word. In other words, the commandments. And we will come in you. And who's we? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity dwells in the person who keeps the commandments. And when we can't keep the commandments or we fail to keep the commandments, someone says, well, I try and I fail. Does that mean that I'll never get the Holy Spirit? Repentance and the commandments. God has given us repentance. Where we fail, we offer repentance, which will come more to that soon. St. Theophilac says on this part, he also makes it clear that both he and the Father will appear only to those who keep his commandments. This provides the disciples a compelling reason to obey him. The Father and Son remain distant from anyone who does not keep the commandments. For such men do not love Christ. He who does not love me does not keep my words, Christ said. He who does not love me won't do. That's why I see husbands and wives. I love my wife. Do you? So do you... Do you listen to her? Do you sacrifice yourself for her? The wife says, I love my husband. Do you listen to him? Do you sacrifice yourself for him? See, love is that we listen to the other person. Everyone, there's mutual obedience. There's a lot of times obedience. And parents, if children don't love their parents, they shout out because they don't listen. Unless, of course, the parents are teaching something wrong. Saint, the Orthodox Study Bible, one cannot love God and disobey his commandments. To love God is to obey him. Now, does that mean we have to be perfect? No. We have to be struggling to obey. We have to be struggling to keep the commandments. Saint Basil says, the proof that a man does not love God and his Christ lies in the fact that he does not keep the commandments. And St. Suluan of Manathos writes, if we wish to love God, we must observe all that the Lord has commanded us in the gospel. Not part of it, not 70%, 
not 20%, not five commandments, all. We have to attempt to do all. And where we fail, obviously we repent. Now, there's, this par- there's a parable that Christ talks about where someone who built his house on sand and rock and things like that. And when I read it, I thought, this is an excellent parable because it helps us to understand about the commandments. And the Bible passage goes, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, what sayings? The commandments. And does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the world, sorry, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Of course, the, the, the Latins believe that the rock means the Pope, but um, the poor things don't really understand. That's not what it means. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, when I read that, I said, okay, what does it mean? I wasn't, I've got a bit of an idea, but what do we do? We don't try and interpret scripture in our own way, unless you're Protestant. I've said that before. When you're Protestant, you can do whatever you want. But in the Orthodox Church, we do not interpret scripture of our own, in, in our own way. We use the Holy Father's who are full of the grace of the Holy Spirit. Blessed Theophilac writes, and he gets all his interpretations from different various fathers, this too is necessary for us to hear because we confess the Lord with our lips but deny him with our deeds. We've already established that before. Then he tells us how it profits a man not only to hear his words, this is talking about Christ, Christ tells us that it doesn't profit a man just to hear the words but also to do them. Such a one is like a man who built a house upon the rock. So the rock obviously here means the commandments of the gospel, the commandments of Christ. The rock is Christ and the house is the soul. Therefore, nothing will shake the man who builds his soul upon the doing of Christ's commandments. If we have our soul based on the commandments of Christ, then we are like built like a house on a rock. Neither the rain, which is the devil who fell from heaven, nor the rivers, which are mean and harmful men, filled to overflowing by such a rain, nor the winds, which are evil spirits, nor in short, any, can any temptation or persecution cast such a man down. So it's symbolic. The rain means the devil, and the rivers are people that are demonic, that are like with the devil's spirit, which um, attack us. And like the house that's built on rock cannot be knocked down with winds and, that, and, the, and the water, that's, a, that's the same as we will not be knocked down if we, are, if we have our soul based on Christ, meaning, and his, obviously his commandments. Now, Theophilact examines. He says, now we will examine who is like a foolish man. Such a man builds the house of his soul upon sand, that is, with no deeds to provide a stable foundation. So if we don't do the, the commandments, then it's like we're building a house on sand. That is why it collapses under the blows of temptations. For when temptation beats upon it, it falls with a crash. 
Now, I like this part. Unbelievers do not fall. He's not talking about unbelievers. Christ is not speaking about the ones that says, and the house crashed. He says, Theophilus says, unbelievers do not fall, for they already lie on the ground. They don't believe, in other words. It is the believer who falls. Therefore, great was the fall, because it was a Christian who fell. A Christian who should, he's baptised, so he's lifted up, holy, doesn't keep the commandments, doesn't base his life on the commandments, falls. The house falls when its builders do not do the words of the Lord. Great is the ruin of that house. What's the words of the Lord meaning the commandments of Christ? It is those who hear but do not do. But the Lord says, whoever fall, whose fall is great, for the sin of the man who heard but did not do what the Lord said is more grievous than the sin of the man who never heard the Lord at all. So unbelievers and people that never heard about the commandments of Christ, their sin is little, depending on their conscience. Great is the sin of orthodox Christians who do, who know, the law of God and do not do it which goes back to what I said in the beginning of the talk great is the fall no reference to the unbelievers that's there in God's hands what happens to them Saint Ignatius writes branching off easily ruined is the seemingly good life of those who make their foundation an exclusively bodily struggle or even a series of ascetic exercise so he says, poor things, those who base their life, their spiritual life, on bodily struggles, on prostrations, on bowels, on fasting, and all these bodily things, he says, or even a series of ascetic exercises. They base their spiritual life on that. Sometimes these things are very difficult and remarkable. St. Ignatius says, you know, some ascetics would fast, you know, days and days without food. Great fasters pray and don't sleep for days. He goes, they, they remarkable, very difficult, but who do not pay due attention to the commandments of the gospel. Very often ascetics do not pay the least attention to the commandments of the gospel, openly disregard them and do not value them or realise their importance in the least. In other words, they don't even think about the commandments, some of the, these ascetics or Christians of today. The commandments is not even a thing that they think about. And that's how we are if we do the same. So if we fast or pray and we're ignoring the commandments, we are building our souls on sand and with one temptation down. And that's, a, that's, that's fearful and it's true. There were many ascetics who kept their virginity who were fasting and praying and sleeping on rock and, and things like that, and yet he didn't care about the commandments of Christ. When such ascetics encounter unexpected trials and temptations or an unforeseen change in their life, not only is their faith soon shaken, but they even run the risk of that complete moral collapse which is called in the gospel the great ruin of the house of the soul. In other words, 
crash. So we can look up to someone and say, look at that person, his skin and bone, a great faster. Do you know that he does? And then people run. Hence why not many come here. People run. And, I'm, and I'll tell you the truth, I'm happy. Thanks God, I'm telling you. I would really hate for people to come here or to look up to me or because I'm dying of cancer or I'm anorexic or I'm really just a thin person that eats. Because, you know, some people are so thin. They eat, 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 eat. They just never get fat. Their metabolism is just full on. They don't, you know, people don't eat much at all and they get um, fat. Which one am I? I'll leave that for you to guess. So, but the, but the important thing is that that is true. People run to these things. And if they say um, some, they say your name as well, that's even a double bonus. So not only are they cerical looking, but they also, um, they also know your name. But the local medium, the magician, also can say names as well. And how many children you've got. And which child is causing you trouble, etc. I had a fellow that comes to um, the monastery for some servicing. I won't say exactly, so I don't want people to... Well, you don't know him, but it doesn't matter. And he rang me up and he said to me, you're Greek? I said, yes. He goes, look, there's a woman in Bexley. I said, okay. What about her? He said, um, I think my girlfriend is doing magic on me. I go, how do you know that? Because I went to her and she said, it was that, that's who's doing it. I said, okay, and so what's she saying? She wants me to come on Sunday and pick up three dozen eggs. I said, look, I can, I can give you eggs too if you're that desperate. Why do you have to go to her? <laughs> no, I've got to get these specific eggs and she's going to take me to the cemetery and we're going to do some type of stuff over the graves. I said, that's magic. And she goes, oh, because, but, you know, my... My life's not going well. I've had car accidents. My business has gone down. And just I'm not feeling well. Nothing's going right for me. And I said to him, yeah, but look, this is, this is the... Yeah. But she knew. She even knew things that I'd never told her. I said, oh, well, she must be an authentic one because... But I said, you know, do you know about demons? She goes, he goes, because this guy doesn't know much. I'll tell you in a minute exact background. And he goes, I don't... Um, he goes, yeah, I know about the demons. Yeah, we believe that. I go, well, the demons can inspire people. He goes, yeah, but my, my sister went to one of them years ago and she got better. She divorced one person, married another person, and now she's happy. I said, yeah, when you go to these people, you might be happy for a little bit, but after that, it becomes worse, whatever you've gone there for. Actually, it can lead to suicide and this and this and that. It's very dangerous. And he goes, but my business and this and that. And I said, I wouldn't do that. I said, you rang me up. I said, I, I really tell you not to do it. And I spoke a little bit about magic and things like that. He says, I think I'm going to go ahead with it. And I said, you're free to do what you want. But it's dangerous. And you're going to be sorry for what you're doing. And... Um, The funny thing was that this person, you might think, well, what, what was he? Russian Orthodox? Greek Orthodox? He was Muslim. So it was very hard to kind of 
talk to him because I had to come and say, well, what is your religion? Do your religion believe in demonic things and this and that, whatever? I couldn't because I had to find something common so I can get him to grab onto. And he was saying, oh, he's clergy, whatever they are, told him that those things are bad. I go, well, you see, that, that's bad and all that. But this guy just believed because that woman had told her, can I ask you something? Is she blonde? And he goes, yes, she is. I go, does she have a lot of bangles? He goes, yeah, do you know? I go, no, they, they, that's how they all are. <laughs> I can't, I, I said to them, they all like that. See, maybe he thought I had powers. No, no, they said they all got the bangles, a, a couple of hundred chains, blonde bleach hair, black eye, what do you call those, mascaras and stuff like that. He goes, yeah, that's how she looks. I said, yeah, I know. I said, I, didn't, I don't have powers. That's just generally how they are. I don't know why. They're just into their ash, what's that? ash blonde. They're really into that ash blonde colour. I'm sure the supermarkets at Bexley must be sold out. Um, so the poor thing, when I met him, he said that he went. He got the three dozen eggs. He went to the cemetery. And he says that things are going better. I said, OK, well, that's it. But, you know, it's um, interesting how God even enlightened him to why he goes, oh, because you're Greek and you're a priest and this, and this is a Muslim. And I said to him, you shouldn't do it, but he, but he went. So what I'm trying to say to you is little things like that people look at. You know, she, she knew all things that, I, that, that only I knew. So that's the same as what we're saying here about ascetics. As soon as some heresy occurs or some moral something happens and they fall into sins, they fall with women, they fall with other things, you'd be surprised. And that's what happens when God takes away his grace. St Ignatius writes, from his very entry into the monastery, a monk should occupy himself with all possible care and attention with the reading of the Holy Gospel. That, that's a monk. But the same thing applies for Christians. It's blasphemous for today where the Gospels are available in print. They're mass-produced. They're even here given for free. The Gospels are produced in a mass way and yet people don't read. People, all of us, will give word that we are disdaining, rejecting the Word of God because the Bible is the Word of God. It is God's Word telling us how he wants us to live. And it is blasphemy and inexcusable for, for any of us to not read the Bible. Inexcusable. That's why today I, I was going to read the parable of the ten virgins and I said, I'm not going to read it. I'm a bit, a bit tired of it because people should read the Gospels to be familiar with the Gospels. Every day, a little bit. If you're in the beginning, you can only read, if you want that much, just read it every day, even if you do it for... Even if you read that much for one year, do it for one year, one year, one year. And after that, the next year, build it up, maybe a chapter. The best is to do, as um, St. John, that Russian elder from Moscow, he said to do um, one chapter of the Gospel a day and two chapters of the Epistle a day. And just start one from the front. So you do your one Gospel, two Epistles, and like that. That's why. But that's, of course, that's, that's quite a bit. That's what he was advising his spiritual children. But some of you aren't at that stage. That's okay. Read a little bit. As long as it's every day, especially the Gospels, so that you know the parables, 
so that you know and then when you read the lives of saints and then when you're in your life, as Saint Ignatius is going to say in a minute, it will come to mind the teachings of Christ. And go, oh, okay, Christ said this, Christ said that. And it comes part of your soul. He should make a, such a study of the gospel so that it may always be present in his memory. doesn't mean you try and memorise the gospel. Don't do that. Just let it, whatever you remember, you remember. And at every moral step he takes, for every act, for every thought, he always has ready in his memory the teaching of the gospel. The holy monks of old called the monastic life, and I put in brackets, Christian life, same thing, a life according to the gospel. That's what Christian life is, the life according to the gospel, not a life according to just fasting or just giving some money to the Red Cross or just giving some money in the tray or just coming to confession or just coming to communion. It is the life according to the gospel. The blessed elder seraphim of Sarov said, we should so train ourselves that the mind, as it were, swims in the law of the Lord, by which we must guide and rule our life. Our minds must be filled with the law of God. Our minds should swim in the law of God so that we've always got to know what to do and how to act in our life. The person who fulfills the commandments of the gospel will not only be saved, but will also enter into the most intimate union with God and become a divinely built temple of God, which is what we said before. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Meaning that God himself, like what St. Seraphim says, the grace of the Holy Spirit comes in the person who keeps the commandments. The Lord reveals himself to the doer of the commandments, spiritually. And he is seen with the spiritual eye, with the mind. The person sees the Lord in himself. In his thoughts, feelings, he is transfigured by the Holy Spirit. On no account must the Lord be expected to appear to the eyes. We don't see God with our physical eyes. We feel God within us, in our mind, in our feelings, etc., in our actions. It is evident that the Lord comes to the heart of the person who carries out the commandments and makes his heart a temple and dwelling of God. True Christianity... And true monasticism, says Ignatius Branchinov, consists in the practice of the commandments of the gospel. That is what Christianity is. Where this practice is absent, if we don't follow the commandments of the gospel, says St. Ignatius, there is neither Christianity nor monasticism. Whatever the outward appearance may be, a person can look holy, a monk can look holy, a priest can look holy, he can be doing certain things. But if the life of all of us is not based on the commandments of Christ, then there is no Christianity. Actually, Christ calls such people, he goes in the Revelation, says, a person who's lukewarm, in other words, a person who's a Christian and doesn't do the commandments, he says that I vomit them out. He speaks quite harshly about that. And to your surprise, I found the definition of ascesis, Asceticism. Some people believe ascesis means when you go and live in the desert. Ascesi means when you do a really big fast. Ascesi means when you pray a lot. And yet, that's not what ascesis exactly means from the Holy Father's. Ascesis is man's struggle to keep the commandments of Christ. 
it encompasses not only his bodily and spiritual effort, bodily meaning fasting and prostrations, etc. It not only encompasses his bodily and spiritual effort, but also the method by which he passes through the stages of the spiritual life to reach sanctification. St. Gregory Palamas states that ascesis, asceticism, is the evangelic life which is based on repentance. Now, that to me is such a statement that what we've always thought is, oh, ascesis means that we've got to go to the desert or we've got to go to the Blue Mountains, climb up where the three sisters are and pray all night like St. Seraphim did on the rock so he can die from the cold. But St. Gregory Panamas states that ascesis is the evangelic life, in other words, the life based on the Gospels, which is based on repentance. And people might say, oh, it's so unfair. You're saying that God won't come into someone who doesn't do the commandments. But it's so hard. Based on repentance. But it's so hard. This is a recording. Based on repentance. In other words, when we fail to do the commandments, as long as we're trying, we offer God our repentance. And as we notice from the publican, he didn't offer much at all, but he had repentance. Of course, says Saint Seraphim, every good deed done for Christ's sake gives us the grace of the Holy Spirit. But prayer gives us it most of all, for it always is at hand so to speak, and as an instrument for acquiring the grace of the Holy Spirit. St. Seraphim is saying, yes, prayer is the greatest way of receiving the Holy Spirit, as long as it's connected with the commandments. For instance, you would like to go to church, but there's no church, or the service is over. You would like to give alms to the beggar, but there isn't one, or you have nothing to give. You would like to preserve your virginity, but you haven't the strength to do so because of your temperament, like you can't hold sexually, or because of the violence of the wiles of the enemy, which on account of your human weakness, you cannot withstand. You would like to do some other good deed for Christ's sake, but either you have not the strength or the opportunity is lacking. This certainly does not apply to prayer. Prayer is always possible for everyone, rich and poor, noble and ordinary, strong and weak, healthy and sick, righteous and sinful, intelligent, slow, whatever. It's for everyone. Acquire the grace of the Holy Spirit also by practising all the other virtues for Christ's sake. So that's where he's coming back. Acquire the grace of the Holy Spirit also by practising, not only just with prayer, but by practising all the other virtues for Christ's sake. What are the other virtues? The commandments of Christ. Trade spiritually with them. Trade with those that which give you the greatest profit. For example, if prayer and watching give you more of God's grace, watch and pray. Watch means when you thought something. If fasting gives you much of the Spirit of God, then fast. If almsgiving gives you more grace, give alms. Weigh every virtue done for Christ's sake in this manner. In other words, he's saying do, you know, like um, a priest. Each priest has a different gift. Some priests receive more grace by serving often. I'm just praying. 
Other priests receive more grace by helping the poor or going to the hospitals. You know, it's, uh, and the same with Christians. Some Christians receive a lot of grace by helping a sick person. Some Christians receive a lot of grace by producing material, like giving out books. So you see from yourself, as long as it's done for Christ's sake, not for vainglory. If we understand the commandments of Christ, says St. Seraphim, and of the apostles correctly, our business as Christians consists not in increasing the number of our good deeds, which are only the means of furthering the purpose of our Christian life, but in deriving from them the utmost profit, that is, in inquiring the most abundant gifts of the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't just do good deeds. I'm going to do a lot of good deeds. He's saying, do good deeds, but do them to acquire the grace, and especially do those which give you more grace. But you've still got to keep, obviously, the commandments. But certain things we um, are stronger at. I said, meaning Matabalov, Father, you speak all the time of the acquisition of the grace of the Holy Spirit as the aim of the Christian life, but how and where can I see it? Good deeds are visible, but how is the Holy Spirit to be seen? How am I to know whether he is with me or not? The elder replied, at the present time, Owing to our almost universal coldness to our holy faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and our inattention to the working of his divine providence in us and our inattention to the communion of man with God, we have gone so far that one may say we have almost abandoned the true Christian life. That's what St. Seraphim said in those days. Imagine if you lived in our times. He's basically saying people have become insensitive to the grace of God. They don't even know about it, to feel it, to know about it, to acquire it. He says, this is because of universal coldness, Pharisaism, etc. I asked Father Seraphim, but how can I know that I'm in the grace of the Holy Spirit? Saint Seraphim said, um, it is very simple, your godliness. The apostles always perceived whether the Spirit of God was dwelling in them or not. And being filled with understanding, they saw the presence of the Holy Spirit with them and declared positively that the work was holy and entirely, that their work was holy and entirely pleasing to the Lord God. This expla that explains why their epistles they wrote, where they say it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. When the apostles wrote the epistles, they knew that God was inspiring them. They knew that what they were writing was from God. They knew that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's why they say it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Of course, when we don't have that, do we? Only on these grounds did they offer their epistles... As, in, as the absolute truth for the benefit of all the faithful. Thus the holy apostles were consciously aware of the presence of them, in themselves of the Spirit of God. And you see your godliness, how simple it is. I replied, nevertheless, I do not understand how I can be certain that I'm in the Spirit of God. How can I discern? But no. For myself, his true manifestation in me. Nicholas is saying, how do I know? And Father Seraphim replied, I've already told you, your godliness, that it is very simple and I've related in detail how people come to be in the Spirit of God. It's like St. Seraphim is getting annoyed, but he's, but he's not. And how we can recognise his presence in us. So why don't, what do you want, my son? And Matovolo said, I said, I want to understand it well. See, this conversation helped a lot of people to finally understand the aim of the Christian life. Then Father Seraphim took me very firmly, if you look at the icon there, and the icon that will be on the CD on this talk, 
Then Father Seraphim took me very firmly by the shoulders and said, We are both in the Spirit of God now, my son. Why don't you look at me? I replied, I cannot look, Father, because your eyes are flashing like lightning, your face has become brighter than the sun, and my eyes ache with pain. Father Seraphim said, Don't be alarmed, your godliness. Now you yourself have become as bright as I am. You are now in the fullness of the Spirit of God yourself. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to see as I am. So that's what's called the, the transfiguration of Saint Seraphim. Like Christ transfigured on the mountain, which we had on a few days ago, and others had it a bit longer. So that's called the trans, where the uncreated, where God showed a part of his divinity as the tribes, as each one could endure. Because if Christ showed his full divinity, the apostles would have dropped dead. Here, obviously, Saint Seraphim is not God, but he is, um, he has received the grace of God. He's a child of God, and that's why he's transfigured in the uncreated light. It's not light that's created, it's uncreated light. The, then bending his head towards me, Saint Seraph, Father Seraphim whispered softly in my ear, thank the Lord God for his unutterable mercy uh, to us. You saw that I did not even cross myself and only in my heart I prayed mentally to the Lord God and said within myself, Lord, grant him to see clearly with his bodily eyes the descent of your spirit which you grant to your servants when you are pleased to appear in the light of your magnificent glory. And you see, my son, the Lord instantly fulfilled the humble prayer of poor Seraphim. How then shall we not thank him for this unspeakable gift to us both? Even to the greatest hermits, my son, the Lord God does not always show his mercy in this way. So this is exceptional. What happened here is exceptional. And someone may ask, well, why did that happen? If, he's, if, Christ, if God does not give this experience to even great saints in the desert, why then is he allowing this lay person to experience it and we'll come to the answer for that in a minute this grace of god like a loving mother has been pleased to comfort your contrite heart at the intercessions of the mother of god herself but why my son don't you look at me in the eyes just look and don't be afraid the lord is with us after these words i glanced at his face and there came over me an even greater reverent awe imagine in the center of the sun in the dazzling light of its midday rays, the face of a man talking to you. You see the movement of his lips and the changing expression of his eyes. You hear his voice. You feel someone holding your shoulders, yet you do not see his hands. You do not even see yourself or his figure, but only a blinding light spreading far around for several metres and illuminating with its glaring sheen both the snow blanket which covered the forest glade and the snowflakes which besprinkled me and the great elder. You can imagine the state I was in. So basically, Matabalov, as I say, you say it, is, is saying it's like looking at the sun and you see someone's face and it's that, that's how bright Saint Seraphim was. Father Seraphim asked me, how do you feel now? I said, extraordinarily well. But in what way? How exactly do you feel? I answered, I feel such calmness and peace in my soul that no words can express it. 
Father Seraphim said, This your godliness is the peace which the Lord said to his disciples, My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. John 14, 21. Now, Matavala of Nicholas there is experiencing the peace of the Holy Spirit. If you remember talk 42, I said that a lot of people that are in deception think that they're in peace. And if you remember St. Macarius of Optina writes, the enemy knows how to ambush and deceive a proud person by false consolation as he appears in the form of an angel. It's like the devil can appear as an angel of light. So too, in noetic activity, that means in the soul, he produces his own movements from which the Lord deliver you. In other words, just like the devil can appear and you can think that's an angel, that's the same way as the devil can work in our hearts and we feel that's the peace of the Holy Spirit when it's not. It's he giving you a false peace and consolation. And Saint Siloan said, everyone who renounces his own will before God and other people will always be at peace in his soul. We're self-willed people in general. We like to do our own will. We don't like to listen to many people, do we? People don't even listen to the spiritual fathers anymore. But the man who likes to have his own will will never know peace. See a person that's dying in hospital or dying at home, and when they've finally accepted they're going to die, you say, he looks so peaceful because he has let himself go. A person who's got someone, some disease or some, some disaster, and they let themselves go and go, let God's will be done. And then you notice that even though there's a disaster going on around them, you say, he's so peaceful because he's let his will go. And St. Siloan is saying, if you don't let your will, if you don't try and do God's will, but you're always trying to do your will, you're never going to experience peace, the peace that St. Seraphim is saying. Of course, that peace was true. But I'm bringing this because people get deceived. And he continues, St. Siloan, even if a man prays and fasts a lot, but does not have love for his enemies... He can have no peace of soul, which goes back to what we said at the beginning of the talk. You can fast, you can pray. Do you love your enemies? No. Then you can't have peace of soul. So even if you feel peace while you're praying, then you've got to say, this must not be from God, because how can I have peace? How can I have the Holy Spirit if I don't love my um, neighbour, my brother or whatever? The soul that is sinful and falls into the passion cannot passions cannot know peace and rejoice. When we have passions, when we've got hate and ego and all these passions in us, how then can we have peace? Peace is lost if we show off or exalt ourselves above our brethren if we find fault in those around us. Saying Silouan again. And the last thing he said, peace in our souls is not possible if we do not beg the Lord with all our hearts to give us love for all men and if we love our enemies, peace will dwell in our souls day and night. So the peace that St. Seraphim is showing here to Nicholas is true peace. But this peace, if we try, that's why I talk 42, exalted spiritual feelings and things like that, is that today a lot of people, you see them in church, and I've experienced a lot of them, and I'm telling you, it's very dangerous, when you see that they're so peaceful and they're dangerous. They're the ones that actually go into schisms. A lot of the ones that leave the church or 
you know, go into deception are those who lead spiritual lives, those who pray, those who don't base their life on the commandments. They pray, they get some answers to their prayer, and they think they're holy. And then the devil says, okay, let's, now let's give him some false peace. Father Seraphim asked me, what else do you feel? I replied, an extraordinary sweetness. What else do you feel? An extraordinary joy in all my heart. And Father Seraphim continued, when the Spirit of God comes down to man and overshadows him with the fullness of his inspiration, then the human soul overflows with unspeakable joy, for the Spirit of God fills with joy whatever he touches. Now, I think it's good because we're talking about joy. I'll mention one thing I mentioned in Talk 42. St. Macarius writes, the apostles say that real spiritual joy is one of the rarest fruits of the Holy Spirit that is attained only near the peak of perfection. That is, after all evil habits are overcome, all passions conquered, and reconciliation with God is reached. In other words, a person has to be very progressed to experience this extraordinary sweetness, extraordinary joy, extraordinary peace. Does that mean we don't experience it all? Of course we're going to have sparks here and there some but we don't say oh now I'm, I'm sometimes we do experience depending on our repentance and our struggles but to be in the state like saint seraphim was that's only when someone's progressed so we've got to be careful of deception what else do you feel your godliness i answered an extraordinary warmth how can you feel warmth my son look we are sitting in this forest it is winter and there is snow under our feet there is more than an inch of snow on us and the snowflakes are still falling. What warmth can there be? I answered, such as there is in a bathhouse where the water is poured on the stone and the steam rises in clouds. In other words, like, like um, warmth, they have their baths like that. He, he asked me, and the smell, is it the same as in the bathhouse? I replied, no, there is nothing on earth like this fragrance. When in my dear mother's lifetime I was found of, fond of dancing and used to go to balls and parties, my mother would sprinkle me with scent which she bought at the best shops in Kazan, but those scents do not exhale, um, exhale the same fragrance as what I'm smelling now. And Father Seraphim, smile, smiling pleasantly, said, I know it myself just as well as you do, my son, but I'm asking you on purpose to see whether you feel it in the same way. It's absolutely true, your godliness. The sweetest earthly fragrance cannot be compared with the grace, fragrance which we now feel, for we are now enveloped in the fragrance of the Holy Spirit. What on earth can be like it? And here I want to say, this is where the demons also do the tricks, where they give these smells to people so they can believe that there's some, you know, come in. Sometimes icons do give that, like recognised icons, relics of saints. When you venerate them, they give off that beautiful smell. Uh, but when we start smelling things in our room and coming from icons or whatever, then something's not right. We're not worthy to have these type of experiences. You have told me, your godliness, that around us it is warm as in a bathhouse, but look, neither on you nor on me does the snow melt, nor does it melt under our feet. Therefore, this warmth is not in the air, but in us, while these Catholic mystic saints, as they call them, and other ones in Hindu, the Hindus and all that, they give off body heat. But the heat that they give off melts snow and things like that. So that's not the same warmth as what has been said here. It is that that's demonic warmth. 
It is that very warmth about which the Holy Spirit is in the words of prayer makes us cry to the Lord, warm me with the warmth of the Holy Spirit. By it the hermits of both sexes were kept warm and did not fear winter frost being clad as it as in fur coats in the grace given clothing woven by the Holy Spirit like Mary of Egypt who at the end when she went into the desert she had clothes but by the end of it all her clothes were gone. Heat and cold and yet she was protected by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And it must, uh, and it, so it must be actual fact, for the grace of God must dwell within us in our heart, because the Lord said, the kingdom of God is within you. By the kingdom of God, the Lord meant the grace of the Holy Spirit. This kingdom of God is now within us, and the grace of the Holy Spirit shines upon us and warms us from without as well. From without as well. It fills the surrounding air with many fragrant odours, sweetness, our sense, sweetens our senses with heavenly delight and floods our hearts with unutterable joy. And isn't it interesting, as I finish the, that's what I'm going to do of the conversation, isn't it interesting that he described the following, which comes exactly what St. Paul said, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. What was described there? The sweetness, the joy, the peace, the, the consolation. All those are fruits of the Holy Spirit. So some of you might say, okay, I'm going to now do good deeds for Christ's sake. I'm going to practice the commandments so I can receive the Holy Spirit like Saint Seraphim said. And that's correct. That's what we should be doing. Problem is, today, there are just about no spiritual fathers with, especially in Australia, with, with the spiritual, with spiritual discernment to know, to be able, sorry, to be able to guide. Most confessors is different to a spiritual father. Most confessors, you say your sins, thanks God that we've even got that, that we can go and say our sins. However, they themselves admit that they can't properly guide. A lot of times they don't know what's from God. What's, it's very difficult for them. They can, they can still say the command, they can tell you about the commandments, the canons, etc. But the problem occurs, as Father Porfirio said, Elder Porfirio's, when someone starts to lead a spiritual life and starts to experience in their heart the grace of God, this is where the deceptions start to open up. That's why I did talk 42, and I advise you to, and 41 and 42, especially 42, <coughs> talks about all those things which I summarised a bit today. So, what do we do then? This is a problem. Are we tired over there? Finishing. Because without this, then the three and whatever hours you sat there would be all for nothing. And you don't want to sit there for nothing for three hours. Uh, three and a half. Maybe even four. Uh, so let us look at the answer to that question because I don't want you to leave and start saying, okay, now I understand that we have to acquire the Holy Spirit. And the way we know that we've got the Holy Spirit is we've got joy, sweetness, peace, Warmth and all these things. Why am I scared for people to leave at this point? Because the devil can give fake feelings 
so that we can think they are of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I'm telling you. A lot of people experience fake feelings. We all do a lot of times. But when it's done in ignorance, God still protects us because sometimes we don't know and there's no one to really guide us. However, because we lack that discernment, because there is a lack of spiritual discerning fathers, because the devil can give us fake feelings, like you see, like you look, look at the, um, the Jehovah Witnesses when they come to your door. Some Greeks, they really, I don't know about Russians and Serbs, but some Greeks, they're really into it. And, you know, as soon as they come and knock on the door, then they start shouting, you know, get away, devils, and this and that, and start screaming at them and abusing them. And they don't get angry. Peace comes from them, peace. The ones on the bikes, the elders, the elders on the bikes, you can, you can throw a crowbar into their wheels, they can flip three, four times, and yet they'll get up and they'll say, good afternoon. So, full of peace, you don't see anger. Where does this peace come from? Maybe because Joseph Smith was correct that the real religion is in the later day of sense, whatever they call them, in his books that, they, that, that he found. Maybe the Jehovah Witnesses, what, are we going to say that they're correct? Where they blaspheme and say that Christ isn't God. So where is this spirit coming from? Where are they at peace? Because the devil can give false peace. Another way to get false peace is through medical prescriptions of certain drugs and also uh, illegal drugs. All you do is look at some documentaries of the 60s of the hippies and you'll see peace and you'll think, are they secret monks or something with their long beads and flowers in their hair in California there? But they're not. They're just peaceful because they're, they're off their face. But then you've got the ones in the Hindu religions, the gurus, where they appear peaceful. So, no. When I'm not saying to ignore St. Seraphim's words. I'm saying that we've got to go one step back. Before we can experience those things, we need to experience something else. And this is the last part of the talk, my last three paragraphs. Are we ready? I called it the first gift of the Holy Spirit. So someone say the first gift is speaking in tongues. Someone can say the first gift is to be able to fast and not feel hungry. The first gift could be to be able to pray and you lift yourself up like you know um, some magicians can do real magicians and some that do tricks. What's the first gift? Father Seraph, Saint Seraphim said all those things. That's correct. But there's one gift before that and this is how we know whether the other gifts are true. By knowing this gift, only if you have this gift, is there a chance that the others is true, whether it's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc. Firstly, of course, we base our life on the commandments. When we fail, we repent. Everything starts from the commandments. Okay, so let's just say we've understood that today. We go away, we read the gospel, we read the Holy Fathers, and we start to base our lives on the Holy Commandments about humility and love and to, be, to rejoice when you're persecuted, when you're slandered, etc., to mind your thoughts. There's all these things, not to be vainglorious, etc., we base our life on the commandments. So, 
The first gift, which I've read this a number of times, but I can't help reading it. The first gift which Christ gives to the person who prays is, who knows? And don't say joy, love, peace, none of that. I don't want any of that. The first gift which Christ gives to the person who prays is the awareness of his sinfulness. Repenting for our sins and the awareness of our sinfulness are essential in the development of true prayer and I add to spiritual life. Moreover, the awareness of our sinfulness, of our nothingness and hope in the merciful Christ are characteristic of orthodoxy in all our hymns. That's what orthodoxy is about. St Ignatius writes, the first one was Metropolitan Yerothos. Now, St Ignatius writes, the mind can see its sins when the grace of God touches it. Darkened by the fall, the mind of itself is incapable of seeing them. We cannot see ourselves, we cannot see our sins, unless we are given the grace of God. Seeing our sins and our sinfulness is a gift of God. The first gift. See, someone might say, but there are people who commit suicide because they see themselves as bad. Judas acknowledged that he was bad, that what he did was wrong. I have betrayed innocent blood. That's not what I mean when we say to see our sins. Christianity, as I did in talk 31, where I talked about does, does Christianity promote depression and hopelessness and things like that? No, psychological, no, it doesn't. When we, because some people say, oh, Christianity makes you guilty. Christianity makes you feel bad and off. And, and we yet we see saints, like Saint Seraphim who said, poor Seraphim, and he called himself unworthy, etc. When people used to, I've gone to Elder Paisos and Elder Porphyrus and other people have gone to different saints, if you've ever met any, and yet they are so aware of their sinfulness, which they believe that, but at the same time, they're full of joy. They're full of grace. So the difference is that when we become aware of our sinfulness, it has to be connected with repentance, with hope in God's mercy. Judas did repent, but he didn't seek God's mercy, and that's why he lost paradise. We need to be aware of our sinfulness. Yes, I'm bad. Yes, I don't love my husband. Yes, I'm no good to my child, I didn't bring up my child properly or I did this wrong or whatever. We are aware of our sinfulness, but not to fall into despair, but to say, like the publican, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Confession's worthless if you're not actually uh, repentant and asking for God's mercy. People come because they regret. Father, I regret I hit my child. I regret it. That's not, that's not what God wants. He doesn't want regret. He wants repentance. He wants you to trust in him as a person who will give you forgiveness because he's full of love. So St. Ignatius writes, So those who have acquired a true spiritual understanding of repentance, including all their labours, such as prayer, fasting, and considered a waste of a day if they had not wept for their sins, the saints can do the greatest works. And if they felt that day that they didn't have repentance they would say everything today, my fasting, my prayers, my prostrations, whether they helped millions of people, if they didn't have repentance based on the commandments for their failures and their commandments, then they said that they, was, they considered it as a waste of day. 
the greatest of the Holy Fathers acknowledged that repentance was their sole occupation. So yes, the commandments are the basis, as Saint Seraphim says. We do it for Christ's sake, but where we fail, we repent. A true monk rejoices when he begins to see his sins, when he considers himself lower and more sinful than all his neighbours. The greatest success of a monk, or a Christian one can say, is to see and acknowledge that he is a sinner. Hyamata Peter of Damascus said, when the mind begins to see its great number of sins like the sand of the sea, it serves as a setting and starting point for the soul's enlightenment and is a sign of the soul's health. When a person begins to see their sins, when people come to me to confession or to other priests and they say, oh, just all the sins that are just, that's okay. But some people say, oh, I won't tell the priest my sins because then he won't think I'm good. We're not interested whether you're good. We're interested in a person who sees their sins and is repentant and comes to God to receive forgiveness. And when a person does see themselves, they got people that say, I feel that I've got hate. I feel I lack love for people. I feel that I've got revenge. I feel that I've got, um, that I don't want to fast or that I'm lazy to do prayer a lot of times. I don't read the word of God with, with um, you know, properly. I, um, you know, I fail in this, I fail in that. When a person begins to see that and, and comes to God for forgiveness, repents, then that person, that's the start of spiritual life. And the last thing that I wanted to say is that a person who does not attempt to do the commandments won't come to repentance. That's the reason why, to answer the question, those who fast and pray, and do almsgiving, etc., that they don't receive any help because they're not doing the commandments, making an attempt to do the commandments. What's one of the commandments? To forgive those who, tr who do things bad to us. If we're not even attempting to forgive someone, asking God, help me, forcing, you, forcing yourself to go to a person and say, please forgive me, you know, whatever. And when you don't feel it properly to say to God, look how much of a devil that I am, that I can't even say, forgive me, I'm gonna, I deserve to go to hell, but please help me, give me the grace so that I can repent and go and ask forgiveness, that's struggle. That's what spiritual struggle is. Askesis, as we read before, is the evangelical life, the life based on the commandments with repentance together. And next, I was going to say next term, next talk, 20 years and it's still there. So in the next talk, I am going to speak about, with God's help and you know, if, if it's his will for us to be gathered again, the importance of being merciful to others, which will be a continuation of this talk. Are there any questions before we leave? Uh, yep, yeah, any questions? You reject it. Remember the, you haven't been here, but there was an example of <clears throat> a monk who was in his room, in his kili, in his cell praying, and a figure appeared that looked like Christ. And 
he um, rejected it because he wasn't sure if it was from the devil. Or not. He says, I'm, I'm not worthy anyway. And it turned out that it was Christ. And one would say, well, he would be punished because he rejected the truth, but he wasn't punished because of his carefulness and humility he rejected. And the same as uh, I think I read it around three months ago was an example of um, the devil appeared as an angel to a monk in a monastery and said, um, I've come here because God is pleased with you. And he says, no, <clears throat> you must have made a mistake because he can't be pleased with me. And then because of that humility, the demon burst. So humility is far more important. A contrite and humble heart, God will not despise. Not interested in, he's not interested in the other things as being um, <clears throat> those supernatural type of things. Even if our prayers are answered, as I said before, we just think to ourselves, my prayer was answered, but even the prostitute's prayer was answered. Does that mean she changed? No, but she prayed with her heart. So we have to always cultivate repentance, humility, based on the commandments. We have to learn what the commandments are, which is what I'm going to be doing next month, to actually see more on what the commandments are, not just to think giving 20 cents to the Red Cross is doing um, uh, a commandment or going to Africa and adopting children like the, the Brad Pitt and the Angelina woman and then make sure the whole world knows or have a telethon at Ronald McDonald House to collect money for the poor children, um, which is just all lies because the, they'll give a little house there but they make millions and billions. What do they care? What's a little house to them? So, you know, and they're trying to make out that they're doing good deeds. And we're going, see, McDonald's is good because they do good deeds. See, um, America's got America's idol, whatever it's called. They're good because they do telephones and they're collecting money for, poor, for people in Haiti or something like that. And not so that some people who they gave didn't give it their hearts, but we have to see that is one of the commandments to help the poor. But there's many more, which they don't even talk about. So these people even deny God and sing about drugs and sex, promote homosexuality, adultery. Now they're even promoting that monogamy is ridiculous and people aren't really made for monogamy. They just should have multiple partners. You can still be married but have multiple partners. This is the way it's going. And they say, we're not hurting anyone. That's not the commandments. So there's all confusion. So we need to know the commandments of God and that's what we're going to be doing next month. Remember tonight, if we are not reading the gospel every day, then that is a great sin. So don't worry about what others are doing. Don't worry about whether gays are going to get married or they're not going to get married. And look, that's, you know, they're going to do it. Whether they're going to do it now in 10 years, they're going to do it. But the point here is that God's not going to ask us about gay marriages or about this or about that. He's going to ask us, did you read my word? And why not? They didn't have time. But you've got time to access your emails. You've got time to do SMSs. You've got time to go on Tweety thing. You've got time to go on Facebook. How come you've got time for that? You've got time to surf the net and look at all different things. You've got time to do pornography, but you haven't got time to read the Bible. Um, stand up.
cherubim, and we all proclaim, O glorious and the seraphim, he who without corruption gave us birth to God the word, the very Theotokos, he doing magnified. In giving birth, thou didst preserve thy virginity. In thy donation, thou didst not forsake the world of Theotokos. Thou wast translated unto life, since thou art the mother of life. And by thine intercessions dost thou redeem our souls from death. Doxa patrike okia iopnevmati, entiginisit in parthenianae philaxas, entiginisit on cosmonucatelipes theotoke, metestis prostin zoin, Mitiri parcus atizois, Ketes presbies deses litrumeni, Ek thanatu tas psychasimon. Both now and ever and unto the ages of ages, Amen. The grave and death could not hold the Theotokos, Who is unsleeping in her intercessions, and an unfailing hope in her mediations, for as the mother of life, she was translated to life by him who dwelt in her ever virgin womb. O ye apostles from
according to the multitude of his greatness. Oh. Uh-huh. 
today. Thou art translated from earth to heaven. Thy glory is full of majesty, shining with grace, divine brightness. O ye virgins ascend on high with the symbols, praising with symbols of jubilation, let every breath praise the Lord. The dominions and the thrones, the rulers, the principalities, and the powers, the cherubim, and the Seraphim, glorify thy domination, and those who dwell on earth rejoice, adorned by thy divine glory. Kings fall down in homage with the archangels. And the angels enchant Thou who art full of grace Rejoice, the Lord is with thee Granting the world through
Do we matter?